What's got into Tyler Glasnow and Kevin Gaussman and Clay Buchholz? I'll ask Justin Mason from Fangraphs, Rotographs, and many other places next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 17th. It's show number 31 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, The Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, a couple of podcasts, and even more. He'll be discussing Tyler Glasnow's surge in Tampa, Kevin Gausman's surge in Atlanta, Clay Buchholz's surge in Arizona, Plus, he'll be looking at some prospects, the Tout Wars Daily Fantasy Championship round, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Brandon Belt returning from the DL while Ross Stripling goes on, and from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at George Springer returning from the DL while James Paxton goes back on. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon reports on Minnesota outfield prospect Alex Kirilov. And in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at San Diego right-hander Jacob Nix. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about league ethics and the Tout Daily Fantasy Championship Tournament round. And finally in Master Notes, I'll be talking about riding the 2018 Closer Go-Round. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Little League World Series got underway on Thursday, continues through August 26th, and some of those players are destined for future sports success and not always hitting or pitching. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, yes, the Little League World Series got rolling on Thursday in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And if history is any guide, a few of the young ballplayers will find their way into pro careers, but not always in baseball. There's a terrific story at ESPN.com this week talking about some kids over the years who played in Harrisburg and then went on to success in baseball and other sports. Of course, a lot of kids went from the Little League World Series to the big leagues, including such active players as Cody Bellinger, Michael Conforto, a couple of Toronto Blue Jays, Randall Grichuk and Devin Travis, and Todd Frazier, who famously started at shortstop in the tournament final, hit a home run, and got the win pitching in relief. Still more Little Leaguers went to the majors from outside the U.S., including Yusmero Petit of Oakland, who pitched for Venezuela and won the 1994 championship. And how about Jonathan Scope? He played for Curaçao in the 2003 and 2004 Little League World Series, and he won the tournament in 2004 with the help of a two-run home run by his teammate, and now Texas star Jerickson Profar. By the way, Scope also got the save in that championship final. Most interesting to me, though, are the many little leaguers who went big league in other sports. A bunch of NFL quarterbacks, Matt Castle, Chad Pennington, Turk Schonert, Brian Seip, and Gail Gilbert. How about Chris Drury? He pitched his Connecticut team all the way into the 1989 championship final. Didn't win that, but he did go on to win a championship, the 2001 Stanley Cup with the Colorado Avalanche. Speaking of hockey, Pierre Turgeon went from the series to the NHL draft, where he was the first overall pick. 
He never won a Stanley Cup, being stuck in the cursed sports town of Buffalo, but he did score 515 goals in a terrific career, more than Jeremy Roenick, Jill Perrault, speaking of the Buffalo curse, and all-time great Jean Beliveau. And how about Chris Wendell? Wendell also went on to a great hockey career, winning a silver medal in the 2002 Olympics and a bronze in 2006 in women's ice hockey. She was the first girl to start at catcher for a Little League World Series team. And maybe my favorite, how about Austin Dillon? Played for a team from North Carolina in 2002. They didn't win, but Austin Dillon went on to win the 2018 Daytona 500. So good luck to all the kids in this year's Little League World Series, and we'll see some of you in the pros. On to the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, and a whole bunch of other places. Justin, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm super excited to be back. This is uh, quite an honor, and to be able to do it twice in one season, I think, is uh, just a, a fantastic honor that you've bestowed upon me. Uh, the privilege is all ours. Uh, Justin, uh, how are your teams doing, first of all? You know, my teams have been up and down this year. I'm still kind of hanging around in Tout Wars uh, head-to-head. Uh, I, I, I've fallen behind. I've had a, two really bad weeks that have kind of coincided with a, a pretty big move uh, in, my, in my actual personal life where I'm moving properties. Um, and so I, I don't know that I can win it necessarily unless I have a huge rest-of-the-season kind of matchups. But I play the top three teams uh, in the last uh, in the last few weeks, so I have a chance to at least, if I'm not going to win Tout Wars, I'm going to help determine who the winner is. So that's kind of cool. My other teams, I'm I'm competing in a number of them, uh, but I don't know that I'm going to bring home a championship this year, which is something I don't think I've said maybe in the last ten years of playing fantasy. So it's uh, overall I'm doing okay, but it's a, it's a bit disappointing. Well, this is a topic that's come up the last few weeks here at Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, we've talked in the past uh, about the importance of playing it hard right down to the wire. At what point in your season, if ever, do you think it's okay to fold a few of your losing hands and concentrate on the teams that might get you to the to a pennant, might get you into the money? You know, that's a really good question, and I've heard a lot of uh, a different uh, talk on this and a lot of different answers. For me, I try to play hard in every league all the way through. Now, there, there are going to be times where, you know, the last couple weeks I mentioned I've been moving, and so it's uh, been it's been a little bit more difficult to play it hard in all of my teams. But for the most part, most years, I want to compete as hard as I can because one of the things I think people don't realize is that in spite of the fact that we're late into the season, you can still make gains in the standings. Uh, and I think sometimes people look and see that they're in seventh or eighth place and go, well, there's no way I'm going to win this league. They give up when well, there, there was a chance they could have gotten into you know third or, or second place and into the money uh, in some of these money leagues. So I, I try to keep going. I learned my lesson the hard way a few years ago when I was in an NL only league. And in June, I was in 11th place and uh, I kind of, uh, I kind of gave up. wasn't really paying close attention. Still set my lineup and stuff, but it just wasn't making act, wasn't being an active participant in the process. And then I looked again at the standings at the beginning of August, and 
I was in fifth place, and I went, whoa, I, I moved up from 11th to 5th without even trying, and was all was able to make it all the way to second place by the end of the year, and had I not been so lackadaisical during those couple months in the summer, I might have actually won the league. So for me, that was a lesson uh, learned, and just try your hardest, uh, no matter what, and you never know what can happen. You also participate in the Tout Wars uh, DFS League, the Daily League, and you won one of uh, the golden tickets for from period five, the last four-week period. The league format of Tout Wars uh, Daily Tournament rewards players who amass big point totals over multiple weeks. So the competition has elements of a cash game, you want to be consistent, but also elements of a tournament in that you want to separate yourself from all the other guys who are trying to be consistent. When you were planning your uh, rosters during this DFS tout tournament, how did you approach the particular structure that the league imposes? I I try to not take on a too much risk because it, it's they're they're spread out over multiple weeks uh, these periods and uh, you I think some people try to shoot their shot and they want to get into the top you know two or three. Uh, spots each week, but I think one of the strategies I've tried to employ this year, and it's worked okay, is I just need to finish in the top eight or nine. So I want to make sure I have uh, some good starting pitchers, at least one stud, uh, if not two, to to rack up points. And I just want to make sure I'm always getting up towards the top. It's almost like kind of a a, a 50-50 strategy or cash game strategy as opposed to a GPP strategy, even though there can be upwards of 40-something people uh, in, in uh, in these tournaments. Because if I can continue to be consistent like that, over time, I'm going to build up enough points uh, over the period to get me in. And I think I've been, uh, I think I've been close to being in the top three for each period so far this season, you know, and there's, I've always just kind of fallen just outside of the top three to get one of those golden tickets until this last one. Uh, So... Uh, I, I think the strategy is is a decent one, uh, but maybe I need to start taking a little bit more risk sometimes with these periods. Um, the year I got into the into the final, got my golden ticket. I remember I I didn't win any particular week in the uh, period that I got my golden ticket, but I finished top ten in all four weeks. And they said at the time it was the first time it had been done, and I thought this seems to be the way to go about it. Uh, of course, then things change when you get to the final because then it's a uh, kind of a one game thing. They've changed that too this year, Justin. The final is going to be a three-day affair, and they're going to cut down after day one, so half the teams get cut, and then they're going to cut again, the half the teams get cut, so that there's only four, I think, by the end of the by the end of the tournament. So now you have a kind of a different set of rules to play by. How do you think that's going to affect your roster making decisions? Uh, counting the fact that you need to be consistent finish top half which makes it seem like a 50 50 or cash game but at the same time you're going they're going to be amassing all your points for all three uh, days so you got to be a little more you know willing to accept risk to get the big point totals seems like a really difficult decision to have to make yeah i think uh what i'm going to do is kind of do the opposite of what i've been doing oh I'll have some safety, uh, just but very, very little. I'm going to just try to shoot my shot because, like you said, the, the accumulation of points over the playoffs is is what makes you win. And at this point, you know, who cares if you 
uh, finish you know uh, second or last in in these playoffs. It's really just about winning, um, and so I, I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna go a little bit more uh, risk, a little bit more upside, and hope that I can uh, you know continue to one do well enough week to week to or game to game to continue to move on but uh have some really big nights and uh and, and take the overall because uh, i i want to i want to be a tout wars champion i don't want to be a tout wars third place uh several of the participants have multiple entries they finished in, in the top three in in different periods i think todd zola actually has three tickets a bunch of guys have two you have only the one I'm going to ask Todd about how he's planning to take advantage of his three tickets, but how are you going to look at the competition based on the fact that other guys have these extra entries they can put in? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what these guys with multi-entries do because they can kind of afford to take different strategies. They can do a riskier lineup. They can do a safer lineup to make sure that they're uh, they're getting at least one lineup into the next uh, into the next tourney. So. Uh, I'm I'm definitely interested to see what they're going to do. I'm not going to worry as much about what I think uh, the other people are doing. That's one of the nice things about daily is you can kind of just build your own lineup and not worry about you know how does how does me using this guy affect someone else using it. Um, you know, you try not to share the same guys, especially if you're going to go with a a little bit more risky approach. You know, maybe try to go with some guys who are a little bit off the beaten path. But for the most part, I think uh, I'm not, not going to worry too much about what other people are doing, other than just kind of enjoying uh, uh, the strategy behind it and watching uh, what they're doing necessarily. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Justin Mason from Rotographs, Fangraphs. Gosh, you got uh, more credits than uh, probably Tom Cruise <laughs> does at this point uh, in your career. You uh, you write almost everywhere. You run uh, the big. Uh, uh, great fantasy baseball invitational tournament. How are you doing in that tournament, by the way? I am not doing particularly well. Uh, you know, at this point, I'm just hoping to finish inside the top hundred out of 195. I don't know if that's even going to happen. Uh, I took on a lot this year in terms of my my writing and then uh, doing the, this invitational uh, and. It's uh, and, and the amount of teams I've done this year. I, I think I'm playing in 17 leagues, so it's been it's been a difficult balance, and I'll have to definitely assess in the off season to kind of tone it down. The, the invitational will continue no matter what, and it's probably going to grow to uh, from uh, 13 leagues, uh, probably closer to 20 next year. So uh, that that's pretty amazing. It's been a it's been a pretty uh, it's been a pr- truly humbling experience. The the amount of uh, outreach that I've gotten from people, the people who have uh, said that this has been one of the funnest leagues that they've played in in a long time. Uh, and it's I feel like it's brought the industry together. So in spite of myself not personally doing well, uh, I think the, the overall project's been a success. Well, you mentioned uh, you do a lot of writing. I mentioned the same thing. Uh, probably my favorite thing that you write, because it's so regular and so interesting, is the Roto write-up at Rotographs, which is part of the Fangraphs structure. And uh, at Rotographs, you have this column, the Roto write-up, and it's pretty much a daily thing. I know sometimes somebody else does the writing, but you do it a lot of the times, and I'd like to talk about some of the things that you've written about uh, recently. But first, I'd like to talk about stolen bases. Uh, the stolen bases are way down again this year. It seems like a 
a real trend now. If we assume that this is a trend and it's going to keep trending downwards, how do you think it's going to affect our valuations of all-round players, your Jose Ramirez's, Mookie Betts's, those kind of guys who have a solid mix of production and then add stolen bases versus how we value your D Gordons and your Billy Hamiltons where the most of the value comes from stolen bases? I think you're going to start seeing guys like Billy Hamilton, uh, guys like Starling Marte, um, really arise in people's ranks and ADPs because they they just offer so much overall value because they're they're not just giving you these, uh, you know, just these sole huge uh, stolen base numbers. They're also providing you with power or average. Uh, and it's uh, it just it, it adds to your team construction and, and the ability to kind of go wherever you want, and you're not having to chase that category anymore. So if you, if you can if you get a Trey Turner or or a, a, a Jose Ramirez or a, a Starling Marte, these guys are fantastic construction pieces because it allows you to just be flexible in, in your drafts and auctions the rest of the way. It'll be interesting to see what happens with D. Gordon uh, and Billy Hamilton after the season because these kind of one category contributors. And I, I, you know, in the past I've said that D. Gordon I don't think is a one category contributor because he typically provides you know a, a, a pretty decent batting average. It's it's been down a little bit this year, so plus he scores. Uh, we runs, kind yeah. of put him back into that one category uh, contributor. It'll be interesting to see because they haven't been the jackrabbits that we've seen them be in the past. Billy Hamilton has 29 stolen bases. D. Gordon has 27. And while those numbers are good, they're not so elite where they make up for the kind of deficits in power uh, and RBIs that uh, that they have. And so it'll be interesting to see where they go. I tend to want to say that they'll bounce back and I'm going to value them similarly where, uh, to where I did this year, which was you know on the high end uh, of the industry. And so I'll probably end up with a lot of shares of Hamilton and, and D. Gordon. But I think what the, the overall context of, of speed in the league does to fantasy is, one, you're going to see prices go up, but you also don't have to uh, spend as much maybe as you have in the past because the stolen base numbers in your standings aren't going to be that differentiated because we're not seeing a ton there. So you can make it up a little bit easier. So it may be kind of like saves or average where it's something to consider punting early on in the season and then acquiring later or going after the guys that are pop-up guys like like Jose Peraza who has 18 stolen bases or Malik Smith who has uh, 25 stolen bases and trying to supplement that way. I think that's an interesting question. When the uh, overall totals are declining, the the question then becomes: Does that cause the the gaps in the standings in the category to decline, or if you assume that uh, somebody gets even two really top stolen base guys, maybe uh, D. Gordon plus a Jose Ramirez, and they build their strategy that way, along with a couple of other guys. Could this could the stratification of the category change in the opposite direction, where there's more space between and maybe clumps where you can make some points up? Uh, I don't know which way it's supposed to happen. Have you uh, looked into it or given it any thought or heard anything about what we can expect uh, when the overall supply of a of a stat? increases or decreases, whether it sort of universally affects the gapping in the category? You know, that that's a really good question. I would say that 
it's probably pretty league dependent. And maybe this is a, maybe a project I'll do for the off season. Uh, maybe I'll kind of dig into some NFBC leagues and kind of see uh, if if standings for for stolen bases were more grouped or more spread out because of the kind of diversity of numbers that we've seen this year. And especially, like I said, with the guys like Billy Hamilton and G. Gordon, they're stealing bases, but they're not stealing nearly the amounts that they have in the past. So uh, I, I, it's definitely something that I think someone, and, and maybe it'll be me, uh, should dig into to kind of develop a stolen base strategy for the future. Because maybe this is a category like saves where, hey, you get one good guy and one mediocre guy, and that's enough to keep you in the running. Or maybe you really do need to pile on some guys. So uh, honestly, I, I have no idea how that kind of data would turn out, but it's definitely something I'm going to look into. I was wondering about it too in the case of home runs. The home run numbers, the totals across baseball keep rising, and yet I've heard some guys in leagues say because of the rising number of home runs, there's more of them spread around. There's more 20 to 25 home run guys, and you can't run away with it with a couple of 40 home run guys because so many uh, players have elevated numbers of home runs that the category, the category itself is becoming more tightly packed. And then I've heard other guys in other leagues say, no, 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 no. If there's more home runs, that means that they're spacing out more because there's more, you know, more home runs to go around between the 12 teams or 15 teams in the league. I think it's an interesting thing to look into because it has real serious ramifications for roster planning at draft. It, it really does. And I think, uh, I think one, it'll be very league dependent. I think this is you know, one of the first things I do every year uh, after the end of the season is I do a league by league breakdown of uh, of each one of my leagues. So, and this isn't necessarily something I've always kind of released to the public, but just for my own edification, and I've been doing it since I started playing fantasy fifteen plus years ago. Um, and it's just kind of a review session. What what went wrong? What went right? Where can I adjust my strategy for this individual league uh, going forward? And I think that's something that everybody should be doing. You should be doing kind of, you know, a, a post-game breakdown of what happened. And I mean, professional athletes do it, so why aren't we doing it in for our own fantasy teams? Uh, and I think that will give people greater insight into their own league, because especially in auction leagues, but it, it's true in snake in snake drafts. Each league is so different based on the personalities in the league. It's it's why tout wars and labor in leagues like that are so interesting because a lot of these guys know each other, but there's always new elements being introduced as new people filter in. Um, and so these guys know each other really well, but at the same time, there's always going to be a wild card or two. So uh, I think it's I think it's really important to kind of sit down and really dive deep into the standings. Uh, in the categories in your individual leagues and see where maybe you can get an edge on your competition. I think the same is true uh, in my review that I do every year. I go, I go all the way back to my draft and I say, well, where were guys spending their money? What was mm -hmm. their, what did it seem like the strategy was going into draft? How did they execute? 
But having said all that, there's still the danger that you can look at the last two years of a league and say, okay, I've got a handle on this. Joe Smith, my uh, my opponent, he likes to spend heavily on starters, and, and Al Johnson likes to really go after power hitters. And the next year, they can just completely turn things around and do it completely different. In Tout Wars American League this year, it's always been a fairly cautious league as far as spending goes. There's not a real um, outburst of spending at the top of the league. And this year, there were like six players who went over for 40 bucks, a bunch of players went for 38 39 uh, Chris Liss grabbed uh, Kluber and Sale, paid $42 each. The, the, this kind of uh, stuff was going on, and I reacted to it really poorly. And now my concern is that I'm going to say, okay, next year I'm going to plan to get in there with both feet and and compete hard for those $38, $40 players that are really not worth $38 or $40. And I'm going to find out that there's only three of us, and now the whole league has switched back to some other valuation system, and I'm going to be standing out on uh, you know on that little outcropping in the middle of the ocean wondering where the boat went. Well, and that that that's one of those things where it's like that's that's the beauty of fantasy and and what makes the game so much fun, uh, and why I really focus uh, on kind of a strategical uh, standpoint in terms of of the way I, I play. And I, I there I've I've always said there are uh, there are stat guys, there are guys who watch the game and and really kind of you know do their valuations uh, by with the eye test. And then there are game players, and I'm a game player. I, w- I want to play games. It's one of the reasons uh, I kind of went into my Tout Wars League with a-, a strategy that was completely different than anybody else. And I think it kind of helped flip the draft a little bit on its head, uh, or the auction on its head a little bit. And uh, y- y- I, I want to be that person that's throwing the-, the wrench into the plans as opposed to having to react to that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Justin Mason from Rotographs and Fangraphs and all kinds of other places, friends with fantasy benefits. I didn't mention that one. Uh, Boy, you're everywhere, like I said. Uh, One of the things that we're all looking at now, especially when we're not doing particularly well in our leagues and don't have to focus too much on chasing a pennant, of course, like like you, I'm trying to move up in my league even though I'm not going to win it. But there's obviously a lot of focus now on the prospects who are coming up now and will be coming up in September, and you've had a lot of uh, content in in that regard, I'd like to start with Danny Jansen, uh, Toronto catcher. They just called him up a couple of days ago, and you called him in a, in a write-up uh, that you wrote, arguably the top catching prospect in the game. This is probably going to come as news to some people, uh, given uh, Francisco Mejia's out there. Uh, mm-hmm. h- how come Danny Jansen? Well, I, I love Francisco Mejia from a pure baseball perspective, and if I truly believed he was going to stay at catcher, then I think he would be my top catcher in the game, but I don't think Francisco Mejia is going to stay at catcher, and I think people are looking at that trade to San Diego as, oh, now he's going to catch. Well, they've got a pretty darn good defensive catcher in Austin Hedges who's you know been able to hold his own enough uh, offensively to keep that job, and so I don't see Mejia unseating uh, Hedges, and if Mejia moves from behind the plate, his bat doesn't play uh, very well at other positions. He, he'd be kind of an average-only guy with maybe league average power. Uh, it, it just isn't a very sexy profile, whereas a guy like Danny Jensen is going to stay behind the plate. He plays good enough defense. He's got a, a good arm. Uh, he's got a, a really nice hit tool, and he's going to have power. His power hasn't really truly emerged yet, though. I mean, he has uh, hit 12 home runs in 88 games in the minor leagues this year, so it's starting to really come through, but 
I think this is a guy that can hit for average and hit for power uh, behind the plate, and and it'll stay stay will will stay behind the plate, and it's a really nice park uh, in in Toronto. So, um, for me, in terms of fantasy, proximity is always a big deal, uh, and a path to playing time uh, definitely factors in. So, I really like Danny Jansen as my top catcher right now. Something I like about Danny Jansen, uh, he, I actually drafted him or uh, took him out of the free agent pool in tout a month or so ago because I was getting rid of a low on base percentage guy and I thought even if Danny Jansen doesn't play at all, this no production catcher that I'm currently carrying is killing my on base percentage just by getting rid of him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up, you know, 0.05 or something like that. And here comes Danny Jansen and I, uh, I looked at I looked him up and gosh, look at these on base percentages in the minor leagues: four twenty two, three seventy eight, four twenty three, three ninety, and right now with his short career in the big leagues, four twenty nine on base percentage. I think that plays at the big league level and it makes him all the more intriguing, or should. Oh yeah, I think he's a guy that he you know he's had double digit walk rates the majority of his uh, spots through the minors and, and through his last two stops at, at AAA in 2017 and 2018, he's had a 14.1% in 2017 and a 12.2% walk rates, uh, you know, striking out 9% of the time and then 13.6% of the time. I mean, this is a guy with a uh, great uh, command and control of the strike zone uh, and the power is developing. And like I said, most importantly, and one of the things we don't focus on enough in fantasy is his defense behind the plate is going to be good enough to stick. And that's a big deal, especially for catchers, because we see catching prospects all the time and people get excited about them and draft them in you know low A uh, in their dynasty league. Never draft catchers. I never draft catchers in dynasty because you never know who's going to stand uh, stay behind the plate uh, and you never know how long, if they are going to stay behind the plate, it's going to take for them to get to the major leagues. I mean, we're still waiting on guys like Reese McGuire uh, to, to yeah. ever make it. So uh, I, I never, I never invest a lot of a lot of uh, money or stock into dynasty catchers, especially guys who are in, in the lower end of uh, the minor leagues. But uh, uh, these guys that you know are in the upper levels and can get on base are, are huge for you. Now, assuming Danny Jansen is on the Blue Jays' 2019 roster coming out of spring training, and I guess there might be service time considerations and those kind of machinations that teams do. Uh, they haven't brought up Vladimir Guerrero Jr. yet, I, I notice, and gosh, at this point it looks like they just might not. Uh, but assuming that Jansen is uh, on the roster when the when the uh, regular season starts next year, where would you slat this Danny Jansen among catchers at 2019 drafts? Um, I'll, you know, I'll probably be higher on him than a lot of other people. I think people will discount kind of what he's done. He won't have much of a track record uh, in terms of the major leagues. But even in the minor leagues, his numbers aren't eye-popping. So uh, I, I think he'll probably end up going maybe even outside the top 20 catchers, which I think would be a huge mistake. Uh, one of the things I think we've seen this year, and we've seen it a number of years, Baseball HQ has done some really great work on this, is the the negative value of catchers in two-catcher leagues. I mean, so many of the guys actually give you negative value. And so to get a guy like Danny Jensen, who he may not win you your league, but he's not going to hurt your team. Uh, and so I think that has a lot of inherent value. So my guess is he's going to be inside my top 15 catchers as long as he looks like he's got a path to playing time. 
And speaking of Blue Jays, when we talked in May, you said uh, Teoscar Hernandez was one of your boon hitters, and that turned out to be a great call. He's been playing very well since then. And just the other day, you mentioned Teoscar Hernandez a second time, and you said, and I'm quoting, he's amongst the best in baseball in some of the stat cast metrics, affecting batted balls, of course. So which of these metrics are you watching with Teoscar Hernandez, and how do they affect your ideas about his value for next year? Um, and you look at his barrel percentage. His barrel percentage is among the tops in the uh, the top one percent in the league. Uh, his hard hit percentage is in the top five percent of the league. Uh, his X slug is in the top eight percent of his league. His exit velocity, top seven percentage of the league. So I mean, what what we can kind of glean from this is that he's squaring the ball up and he's hitting it hard, which are kind of two important things to do as a hitter. Now, you know, that that's not going to affect necessarily your uh, contact rates and things like that. And so these, you know, these, sometimes we can overvalue some of these stat cast metrics. We, we've done it before with, with uh, a number of guys. Um, but these are good signs. And then if you take that evaluation and then you go watch him and you see where he's placing his hands and you see his swing uh, and that it's smooth and, and showing power. And uh, I think you can kind of look at a guy like that and go, okay, this is a time where this guy is going to break out. And, you know, there are other guys uh, that are in the stat cast leaderboards that kind of, you know, pop out to you, you know, as guys that are potentially, uh, you know, guys who could take off, you know, um, Matt Chapman was is another guy that I, I really like and I think, you know, has a chance to pop off in, in, in a similar way and al- already plays fantastic defense. So, you know, he's going to be on the field to kind of tap into the, some of this power. Well, you mentioned the uh, utility of some of these uh, stat cast metrics for hitters. Uh, when if somebody came to you and just said, geez, uh, Justin, you really seem to know your way around this stuff, which two or three things in those baseball savant stat cast metrics for players should I really be looking at, especially when I'm looking at young players, to determine uh, is what they're doing in their rookie year or, or early in their second year sustainable? Well, I, I will start off by responding to that by saying I am by no means like a stat cast uh, 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 savant or uh, or guru. Um, you know, I'm still kind of learning a lot about this stuff, and, and I think the entire industry is still learning a lot about how this applies to real life. I mean, these are fun numbers, uh, but uh, we we they haven't been around long enough for us to really glean. Too many strong beliefs by you know seeing someone with uh, uh, you know these high stat casts or low stat cast numbers for that matter. So that being said, uh, for me, I'm I'm always looking at barrels. Uh, I, I want to see how many barrel uh, uh, people are getting per at bat. Uh, average exit velocity is uh, uh, really interesting to me because if a guy is hitting the ball uh, hard off the bat uh, at high velocities. Uh, on the regular and not just, you know, don't like the, the, the max exit velocity is fun to look at, but I mean, how, you know, a guy hits one ball really, really hard. That, that's a really small sample. But if a guy's over the course of an entire season, hitting a ball hard, that starts telling me something. And, you know, that maybe his BABIP will be a little bit higher because he's going to squeeze some of these balls uh, through the infield that the average uh, player might not. Um, or if, you know, they've got a high barrel percentage, uh, you know, he, he is squaring these balls up uh, on the regular and, you know, maybe it hasn't kind of played out yet 
for it to help him and his average or his power, but it should come. If, if, if his hard contact percentage is, uh, is really high or really low, that, that tells me that this guy, you know, is making good contact and seeing the ball well. And, uh, so, I mean, the, all these things are, are important. Um, but they're just small pieces of the puzzle. And I think, uh, I think there's been a swing towards these stat cast numbers as a way of using it as confirmation bias. And that's not what I like to do. What I like to do is I like to take every single aspect of someone's game. So I'm using baseball savant. I'm using fan graphs. I'm using uh, baseball reference to kind of put a pe- all these pieces of puzzle together. So hopefully I can see the picture very clearly. Yeah, when it comes to exit velocity, I've be, I've been kind of in and out on that stat because I'm just not sure exactly what it means. And uh, my starting point for that question is I like to go to the uh, hard hit ball data. And, and I know sometimes, depending on your source, it's based on actual exit velocities. But w- when I hear that, I immediately get a bit concerned where the cutoff is. So a 90 mile an hour exit velocity is considered hard, but an 89.9 is not considered hard. So the guy loses credit for a hard hit ball over one tenth of a mile an hour. Those are the kind of questions that bug me. So uh, I kind of, in a way, I like the the subjective ones where there's a scorer in the in the uh, press box who says the guy hit that ball hard, you know. And sometimes it's the sound of it. Sometimes it's the you know the how quickly it just got out to the outfield. Or those kind of things. And from there, I'll go. I'll find a guy who seems to have a hard hit rate that's out of sync with his performance, and then I'll go look at the uh, exit velocity data. And the other thing that I like to check in that uh, exit velocity average data is what's the shape of the curve. Uh, you know, is he one of those guys who's getting high exit velocities on a handful of balls, which is pulling his average up, but overall he doesn't hit the ball that hard, or is it a guy that's got a more you know useful? bell-shaped curve with a fairly high exit velocity in the middle and a a good number of above that uh, higher exit velocities out to the right. And those are the kind of guys that interest me. Uh, I did a study at Baseball HQ about whether high exit velocity averages tend to be guys who hit the ball hard usually, and they do. But I always want to find out if maybe somebody's just hit the ball hard 10 times and and, uh, that pulled his average up to, to make him look like maybe a better hitter than he is. And I think those are all really good questions and uh, and really good uh, uh, processes. And I think that's that for me is is the important thing is you know develop a process in which you're going to use this data. Don't make this data the end all be all because I mean obviously Joey Gallo has a lot of uh, barrels. He he has uh, he has one of the highest average exit velocities in the league. But if if you're not watching the dude and you're not seeing that this dude can't make contact most of the time, you're gonna miss something. And uh, and so I mean obviously that's an extreme example, but I think it's important. You know when you see guys like Randall Grichuk at in the top ten of bar- barrel percentage, uh, you go, wow, maybe this guy's ready for a breakout. Well, then go watch Randall Grichuk, and you can see why he's not. I'll bite. Why isn't he? Uh, I just think there's contact problems, and I think there's consistency problems with his mechanics. Uh, so I, I think he's one of those guys that is never going to uh, not strike out. Uh, enough where uh 
uh, it, it's not going to affect him long term. So, uh, I, you know, Greedchuck was one of these guys that I, I always had high hopes for, but I just he he doesn't seem to be able to put it all together on a consistent basis. And I think there's mechanical issues around that. And finally, Justin, I saw in one of your columns that if you were given a choice between Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto, you are v- very positive that Acuna would be the guy to own in a dynasty or keeper format. Why do you say that? Well, I, I think he is the more complete player. And while I love Soto, and I think from a, f- a pure baseball perspective, I think Soto is uh, maybe the, the the better pure hitter. Uh, ultimately, uh Acuna does something in our fantasy game, which is way more important, which is steal bases. Juan Soto has never been a base stealer. Uh, he's never had more than, uh, or sorry, he's only once had more than two stolen bases in any of his stops. Uh, and while his stops have been quick, uh, he's not a guy who's going to be stealing double-digit bases at the major leagues. And Acuna will. Acuna is going to be stealing a ton of bases in the major leagues. And we're now seeing this kind of burgeoning power with Acuna, uh, especially as of late. So, I mean, this is a, a legitimate guy who could be uh, a 2020 guy or a, a 2030 guy or a, or a 3020 guy. So, uh, I think in the fantasy game, Acuna has more value, which is nice because right now everybody's talking about, uh, well, at least before this week, everybody was talking about. Juan Soto and kind of had forgotten about Ronald Acuna, so hopefully people bought in before this recent explosion by uh, Acuna. I said that was the last one, but I have one more quick one that just popped into my head. The Angels recently called up third baseman Taylor Ward, and in your fantasy alarm, yet another set you write for, your daily roundup column there, you said he could be a good guy to have in the stretch run, particularly because the Angels dropped Luis Valbuena. Uh, Tell us a little more about Taylor Ward. Uh, Taylor Ward is a former catching prospect that has uh, moved out from behind the plate. And since moving out from behind the plate, he's really kind of been able to take off a little bit uh, offensively. He's gone from a guy that didn't have uh, necessarily a super interesting profile and was only uh, interesting in keeper and dynasty leagues because of his catching eligibility. And he played pretty good defense. So I don't know if the Angels are going to plan on moving him back behind the plate, but in most of your leagues, he should be catcher eligible. And we've talked about just how awful the catching position has been and the negative value you can get. And again, this is a guy who who has shown double-digit walk rates all throughout his minor leagues. Uh, even just this year in AA, he had a 16.2% walk rate. In AAA, he had a 13.5% walk rate before coming up. Uh, he's got a little bit of pop and some speed. He's he's had 18 stolen bases between AA and AAA this year. Um and so if you're able to slot him in at your as a catcher, uh, you're going to get some pretty decent value. And like I said, with Valbuena gone, he's going to play fairly regularly. So uh, I, I really like uh, uh, Ward as a really sneaky pickup, especially in your two-catcher uh, two formats. Well, Justin Mason, this has been fantastic so far. I'll uh, let you get down to the locker room, take a breath, maybe hydrate and watch some video, and we'll have you back in a few minutes on the second part of the show. Fantastic. Justin Mason writes for Fangraphs and Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Fantasy Alarm. He's also the founder of the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational and works a couple of Fantasy Baseball podcasts in his spare time, including this one. He'll be back a little later in the show. But coming right up now are Market Watch News reports on players from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio.
HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Our first story uh, from the West Coast in San Francisco, Brandon Belt was on the DL with a knee problem and also recovering from appendicitis, which was kind of a weird thing. He's back in San Francisco. Rob Carroll covers the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. What do we expect from Brandon Belt down the stretch? Well, yeah, it's a little hard to tell at this point, actually. Brandon Belt missed 17 games, comes back to a 278, 372, 470 line. So really a fairly nice batting line. And, uh, and we assume at this point that his hyperextended knee, which is what put him on the DL this time, has fully recovered. But whether he's fully recovered from the June appendicitis is really the question. That seems to have derailed what was shaping up to be his best season, as Rob Carroll pointed out. Um, before the pre, before the appendicitis through June 1st, a 950 OPS, 11 home runs in the 34 games since June 1st, three home runs, OPS nearly 300 points lower than what he was doing before the appendicitis. So, uh, it's a little hard to know. I, at this point, uh, his power is fizzled, but his eye is good. He's making better contact, uh, hitting the ball fairly hard, should come back to nearly full time at bats. So it, it, it's a, a bit of a mixed bag here. I, I would certainly keep an eye on Brandon Belt and see what he's doing. Uh, I'm not ready to put him back in my lineup full-time if I have other first-base options, but he could have a very good uh, last six weeks. Well, you know, Nick, when I look at his 2018 season, I see some echoes of his 2015 season when he was a $20 player. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the underlying skills are, are really similar, and he's actually improved quite a bit, as you said, in contact rate, 70% that year, which was kind of his norm, uh, 77% this year, which is quite a lot better. Uh, 123 hard contact index that year, 125 this year. Um, his hit rate is off quite a bit, and that uh, might be expected from 37% down to 32 But he's doing everything right. This appendicitis really does seem to have upset the apple cart. It really does. I mean, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, just seems to, seems to, we don't seem to know exactly how he's fully recovered, whether his strength's all the way back. You know, anytime somebody cuts on you, you don't know what's going to happen once, uh, once it heals or how long it really takes to heal. Uh, so that may be the thing that's uh, that, that's underlying here that's causing the problems. And he could go back very easily in this next six weeks to what he was doing pre-appendicitis. I thought it was pretty interesting that uh, Rob Carroll pointed out the the month splits on OPS. Uh, he started off with a bang in April 1062 and then 921 in May. And uh, it do, it started looking like this was finally the out the big breakout that we were expecting from Brandon Belt. And then all of a sudden he has this appendix uh, situation to deal with. And then in June and July, his OPS has plummeted to 682 and 648. And I guess now the question is going to be, with 40 games to go, whether he can recover it. I don't know if I'd bet on it. Yeah, I don't know if I'd bet on it either. I mean, it's the kind of thing where if you've got him on your roster and can put him, held him on your bench, uh, that's probably worth doing, but I'm not sure I'd go out and buy low on him at this point expecting something to happen because it might not. And what happens in the San Francisco lineup with Brandon Belt? I'm sure they're going to put him back in there for pretty much full-time duty. Yeah, he'll be back in, he'll be back in at first base uh, almost uh, totally full-time. So uh, there'll be a little bit of playing time loss for uh, Gorkas Hernandez, for Austin Slater, uh, maybe for Alan Hansen. 
so it'll, the, the playing time loss will get spread around a bit, but Brandon Belt will be in there full time. I'm sure we can count on that. In Los Angeles, the Dodgers, boy, are they having all kinds of difficulty keeping their pitchers on the field. It's, it seems like as soon as one guy comes back, two guys go off uh, back onto the DL. It's terrible. The latest Ross Stripling goes to the DL with a back problem. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. What's the story lately with the uh, Los Angeles pitching? Well, you know, you've got to remember anytime Los Angeles has pitchers go on the DL that they use the DL to get their pitchers some rest because they've been fairly deep in terms of their pitching staff. So keep that in mind. My guess is that with Stripling, because uh, of, of the earlier injuries that had happened earlier, this is a real problem. Uh, and a, and a, a back injury, a lower back inflammation, that can be really bad. Uh, at this point, we're not, we're not uh, sure how serious it is or how long he'll be out. We're just bumping him down the minimum. The thing to remember about Stripling, however, is that he had been pushed to the bullpen. So the Dodgers already decided that Stripling was not going to be starting over these last uh, these last two months of the season, and it sent him to the bullpen to uh, shore up uh, problems there. In fact, we were expecting perhaps some save opportunities from Stripling before this last DL trip, while Kenley Jansen was out. So, um, you know, I think I think uh, Stripling will be back. I think he'll probably help your teams once he's back. Uh, I don't know that he'll. He'll work back into the starting rotation, but there's always that possibility uh, because of the way the Dodgers handle their pitching and because of the extreme fragility of that Dodger pitching staff. They seem to get hurt all the time. All that said, we are expecting a relatively short stint on the deal. And as you said, it could be just a situation. The Dodgers have been, shall we say, innovative in their management of pitchers using that 10-day DL because, uh, of course, uh, back in the 15-day DL days, you were going to miss three starts. Now, depending on the timing, you can have a guy just miss one. The interesting thing, I think you're right, will be when he comes back, does he ever get back into the rotation? Or are they looking at an innings limit? Are they looking at some kind of pitch count limit and maybe looking at him as a bullpen piece, uh, especially given the situation with Kenley Jansen. Uh, in Philadelphia, they traded to acquire Wilson Ramos from Tampa, and he went straight to the DL. He was probably on the DL, actually, at the time with a hamstring problem. He's been reinstated from the DL. He's on the active roster again, and this cannot be good news for the owners of Jorge Alfaro. No, it can't be at all. I think you've got to remember that before, before Wilson Ramos went on the DL, this guy was probably the best fantasy catcher in baseball. Hitting over 300, 14 home runs, 56 RBIs in just under 300 bats, uh, and hitting the ball consistently month to month, playing very, very well. Uh, so initially when they got in, they thought he might share some time, but Ramos has kind of gone, but, but uh, Alfaro has kind of gone into the tank the last month or so, and uh, Wilson Ramos looks to be like the full-time catcher in Philadelphia at this point. Uh his first game back, three for four, three runs scored, three RBIs. Uh, not a bad way to come back into the lineup. I guess the question is, hamstrings and catchers, uh, I wonder if uh, Philadelphia is going to be a little bit kid gloves with Wilson Ramos, but of course they're in a playoff battle and they're going to need every bat they can get in their lineup. Uh, are they playing with fire by having a starting catcher with hamstring problems play full innings? Well, you know, they may be, and they may, they may be some, some situations where, uh, as they get deep into games, they will, uh, they will take him out and will, um, uh, rest him the last couple of innings if they've got a lead. Uh, but the bat is good enough that you really don't want him out of the lineup in a close ball game. So it'll be one of those situations that he could be removed as a, for, for a defensive replacement, although he plays pretty good defense. Uh, but just to rest him over the last few innings of a ball game. But my guess is he'll be in there starting most of the time. Uh, doubleheader on uh, that they had on uh, 
on Thursday, of course, uh, Ramos started one game. Alfaro started one game, as you would expect for uh, when you've got two very solid catchers. And, of course, I think anybody who has Wilson Ramos has to have him in their lineup. There's no question about that. But I wonder if we should uh, temper our expectations for two reasons. I mentioned the hamstring, a catcher with a hamstring. He also had a knee problem last year, and I think it cost him like the first couple of months of the season. And, again, you're doing all that squatting and standing and squatting. That can't be super easy on a guy's knees. But the the larger issue here is uh, people will be depending to a certain extent on Wilson Ramos for home runs. And his ground ball percentage this year is 52%. And a 52% ground ball rate does not sound like something that you're going to be looking at for a, a, a home run hitter. And it's been 55, 54% for the last six or seven years. Yeah, in fact, what you've got is a, his fly ball rate is only 26%. The reason the, the home runs have been so good, he's got a 23% home run per fly rate. Uh, and that's probably not going to keep up. Uh, although we're actually projecting a 22% home run per fly rate for the rest of the season. So uh, he does seem to get the ball out when he gets it into the air uh, with some with some frequency, but I wouldn't count necessarily on those home runs. We're projecting five home runs at 103 at-bats uh, for the remainder. A couple of interesting columns at BaseballHQ.com uh, within the last few days. There's the uh, speculator column. That's Ryan Bloomfield looking at 20% plays uh, that he finds interesting or possible that you might want to gamble on. Stephen Nickrand writes the starting pitcher buyer's guide column, and in something of a coincidence this week, they both hit on uh, uh, Herman Marquez, a right-hander in Colorado. Yeah, Herman Marquez is, is a guy who's kind of interesting. As Stephen said, this is probably your, if you're in a keeper league, now's the time to get him on your roster, because this is a guy who pitches very well outside of Colorado, uh, and, and we know that that can be an issue. Uh, but, but some really, really nice skills, a 9.7 Dom, 33.2%, 3.2 control, 48% ground ball rate, 116 BPV. Those are skills you can kind of bank on, especially if as a pitcher, you can stream this guy when he's not pitching at home. Pitching at home has been a problem. Uh, ERA at home is in Coors is over six. ERA on the road is, is much, much better than that. So certainly a guy to look at as you head into, uh, into next season. We're looking at a 23-year-old here uh, who's beginning to figure some things out. Has a pretty decent PQS record, especially lately, a few fours and a, and a five, and, and no disasters, which is really important in a starting pitcher. Uh, there is the home road split to consider, but I, I really like this guy. Now, uh, Stephen Nickrand, his column was about command sub-indicator surgers, and this was more with a look at 2019. Right. It was looking, looking ahead for 2019, but seeing that this guy... Uh, some of those sub-indicators that we look at have been surging over the past uh, the past few months, and so as we go into the second half, so certainly a guy to look at. As you mentioned, uh, very few PQS uh, disasters, and in fact, the last one came on June the 24th, and that's a pretty good run for a guy with PQS scores, able to avoid disasters completely uh, for almost two months. Also in that uh, speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looked at Pittsburgh right-handed starter uh, Trevor Williams. He's had an ERA of 075 over his last four starts, but uh, Ryan seems to think that might be a, a bit of a mirage. Yeah, it could be a bit of a mirage. The last four starts, an ERA of 0 0.75. Uh, but if, if you if you look at, uh, at uh, HQ numbers, that's the reason we look at all these things. A BPV of 30, uh, excuse me, uh, DOM of 4.1. Command 1.8, uh, and an XERA of 5.17, uh, and a strand rate of 96%. So this guy is headed for disaster really, really soon. 
Uh, if I owned him, I would certainly not have him in my lineup expecting that kind of run he's had over the last four starts to continue. These kind of things always make me curious, Nick. Uh, when we look at his 2017 season, he put up a 349 ERA across 15 starts in the second half, but his expected ERA was 442, so he was roughly a run better in his uh, real ERA versus his expected. And then he comes around and he's basically doing the same thing this year, and at some point do we have to say maybe this is one of those guys who can consistently outpitch his expected ERA? Well, you know, you do have to you do have to say that eventually if you if you look and see. But what we've got, of course, with Trevor Williams at this point is a really extended run of good luck. Uh, when you've got a difference of five point one seven x ERA and a zero point seven five ERA, uh, that's too broad, I think, a, a spectrum for us to uh, to say. Uh, yeah, I think this guy is really really good. Uh, so I would be very leery of Trevor Williams from here on out. I would be too, and I'm not suggesting that Trevor Williams is really, really good. I'm. Uh, I wonder though, if we look at that expected ERA of 4.2 or whatever it uh, turns out to be, and we can say to ourselves, you know what? I bet you he can beat that. You know, I'm not expecting he's going to be, you know, Clayton Kershaw out here, but I wonder if he's the kind of guy that, you know, call it guile or call it, you know, pitching ability or you know, more a pitcher than a thrower type of things that maybe he just knows how to get guys out when it matters and he can keep the earn run average down to like 375 that makes him worth a look it does indeed i mean that, that at that point certainly it's worth looking at and so i'm, I'm kind of like you are uh the the expected era certainly does mean something it's a very valuable tool but at the same time if it's only a runoff or a run and a half off uh, and, and it's that way consistently for a pitcher, then I agree with you. I think maybe there are guys who are going to outpitch that expected ERA. Uh, but when it starts getting higher than about a run and a half, then I begin to worry. Well, I agree with you about that, that's for sure. But uh, he's 26 years old, so he's coming into his prime. This is a guy I would keep in the back of my mind for, especially National League-only type situations for 2019. I think there could be something there. I, I also could be completely wrong. Uh, Clay Buchholz has come back from the great beyond this year uh, as a starting pitcher with Arizona, and I have to say, Nick, he's looked pretty successful. And on Thursday night just past, uh, he looked really good against San Diego. Mind you, lots of guys look really good against San Diego. A complete game, uh, one earned run, six strikeouts, no walks. That's the kind of outing that uh, you kind of expect from an ace level pitcher maybe a few more home run uh, a few more strikeouts not great pqs scores for clay buchholz all year though so uh, what do we think about clay buchholz given this conflicting evidence well you know the other thing that i look at i try to look at when i'm looking at, at some of these guys too is how consistent are they uh that and, and that is um can, can I count on this guy to go into a start, pick six, pitch six innings or so, uh, and give up no more than two earned runs? If you look at it from that point of view with Clay Buchholz, only twice this year has he given up more than two earned runs in a start. Three earned runs at San Diego on July the 29th, five earned runs on June the 12th uh, against Pittsburgh. But otherwise, two earned runs or less in every single start. Um, that's something that's worth looking at. I mean, this guy at, at that kind of a at that kind of a level, he's been very consistent, and he's going to keep that ERA down uh, as long as he's uh, he's doing that sort of thing. So I kind of like Clay Buchholz at this point. I think maybe PQS is not the right measurement for this particular guy. He, he we want our guys in PQS, for example, to go more than six innings. Uh, he hasn't gotten there very often. One inning, once of seven innings, uh, only one other start of seven innings. So only twice has he gotten seven innings pitched. 
pitched a complete game on Thursday, so went you know that was actually a nine inning complete game. So you know he he uh, he's doing very well, just not working all the way to the end of the ball game, but being very very consistent. So I kind of like Clay Buchholz at this point. If you're looking for somebody for the stretch run, he's the guy to take a look at. And another example, perhaps, of uh, maybe veteran wiles or whatever you want to call it, but his ERA of 267 is like a run and a half under his expected ERA of 413. But again, these tools are not infallible. They are guides, and they when when you see a big disparity, especially if a guy's been able to, to sustain it over an extended period of time, you have to start looking beyond just the components of expected ERA. You have to start looking at what is this guy doing under certain circumstances. Now, when we've project or cast our vision out a little further that you're looking at 2019 clay buchholz is 33 years old and this is something of a comeback season for him i'd be a little more cautious about um about clay buchholz next year than i would be say for trevor williams yeah i I would agree with you i mean the age becomes a factor at some point the other thing that i like to look at as i'm looking at somebody who's out pitching is is xera is bpv and in this case his uh, his bpv is 96 which is right at elite level in terms of a pitcher. And and so a guy who's pitching that well with a BPV, that's a different kind of score. It's figured differently than PQS. Uh, can give you an idea, yeah, maybe he can sustain what he's doing pretty well because the skills seem to be there. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to draw. PQS is based on on the actual outcomes on the field, which are prone to ball in play, luck, and that kind of thing. And BPV is a pure skills metric, looking at strikeout rate, and walk rate, and command, and ground ball rates, and so forth. So it it is a perhaps a better snapshot of the pitcher's performance from a skills basis, ignoring his results. And then PQS is the opposite. It looks only at results and really not that much at skills, although it counts uh, strikeouts and stuff like that too. Uh, Justin Mason, our guest expert today, will be coming back a little later on. He wrote about Clay Buchholz. I'll ask him too. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll talk to you again in seven days. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our man on the National League beat since approximately, when was it, Nick, 1941 or something like that? Now let's go over to the American League and uh, BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. PD, how you doing? I'm doing well, and I think uh, not as well as the Houston Astros, who are rounding into shape uh, after some difficulties with the uh, injuries that they were having in their offense. Uh, Of course, they lost Correa. He's back. Uh, They lost Jose Altuve, and they lost George Springer, and George Springer has come back from the DL. They sent down Derek Fisher in a corresponding move. What's going on with the Houston offense as it seems to be shaping up as they get ready for the playoff run? Well, we hope it's shaping up. Actually, the game they had the other day where they scored nine runs, before that, uh, they'd had like six games where they'd, five of which they'd scored three or less. They'd been in a bit of a slump, and part of it is the injuries to guys like Springer and uh, and Altuve, who's still out, but uh, they're going to need Springer in that lineup. Now, Springer hasn't had a great year. His home runs are down a tad from the 34 he hit in, uh, last year's 19. His BA is down, like like everyone's batting average is down. It's, he's hitting only 250 hit 283 last year but Houston needs a jump start from somewhere and they're obviously going to put him in back into uh, into the outfield the real question is and the interesting thing is who's going to leave that lineup because uh, the guys who've been producing and I, and I wrote about it in playing time tomorrow for Houston recently aren't guys who who play regularly every day like Tyler White and somebody's got to lose some playing time when Springer comes back and that's indeed the question who is it going to be because there's definitely going to be a squeeze 
Yeah, there is. And the real question is, is okay, what do they do in, in, uh, in left field? Um, they have uh, Marwin Gonzalez and, and Tony Kemp. Uh, they're going to be there. I, I think uh, Gonzalez is still going to be in the infield for a while while, while uh, Altuve is out. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Tyler White, I don't know if you've taken a look at his numbers lately, but he's hit seven home runs in very limited playing time. He has a good on-base percentage. The thing I noted in, in, in my column this week, uh, Yuli Gurriel has been terrible uh, in the second half. Uh, in fact, he's, he, he hasn't been quite the same as last year ever since he had that hammock bone surgery early this spring. Uh, um, his, uh, b- before a couple of games ago, his home runs, he'd, he'd hit six home runs for the year, a 66px, you and I know, or power index, you and I know that's pretty miserable. Four percent walk rate. Um, He threw 127 second half at bats. He was hitting 246 with an on base percentage of 289. He's the guy who Tyler White really has to overcome to to get playing time. I'm not sure it's going to happen because obviously these things run in streaks and Guriel could turn it around quickly. But um, it's an interesting situation. They've been putting Guriel at third base and second base to fit White's. uh, batting average into the lineup and and now that everyone's getting healthy we got to see what happens we can be sure that if tyler white plays anywhere it's going to have to be at first base he's pretty miserable with the glove everywhere else yeah that's the real problem with white he's tried on a number of gloves and uh the only place he really fits are first base and dh and and houston has two veterans there they're, they're both slumping veterans but uh Houston is down I think to a two-game lead over surprising Oakland so um, I think think playing performances recent playing time performances are going to have to factor into this. One last idea Evan Gaddis has been plugging up the DH hole without generating a whole lot of offense the last little while could they uh, invite Evan Gaddis to take a seat and then start mixing and matching opportunities with the young guys uh, Tyler White you already mentioned but also Kyle Tucker who's been pretty cold since he got his call up. Yeah, absolutely. Evan Gaddis is another one, just like Guriel, who's in who's in uh, danger of losing playing time. And and Gaddis is just he's he's as streaky as any Astro there is. I mean, he he stunk for the first uh, almost month and a half of the year or month before he broke out. Um, so I mean, Houston's in a real dilemma right now. They have to score runs to stay ahead of Oakland. You know, one of the uh, real breakout stories this year uh, and long awaited, I might add is James Paxton, the left-hander in Seattle. He's thrown a no-hitter this year. He's been really one of the top-tier pitchers in the American League, maybe just a shade off of Kluber and and Chris Sale and maybe uh, Garrett Cole. But uh, he's ba- always had trouble with injuries, and now he's back on the DL. What do we know? Well, it's interesting. Um, like you said, Paxton's been great. Uh, 11 and a half strikeouts for nine innings, 360 ADRA. He and Mike Leake Leak have been the rotation leaders. So, this is a really tough blow for Seattle, particularly with just, uh, what, five, six weeks left in the season. Uh, now, from what I understand, Seattle management uh, uh, thinks he's only going to miss a week. Again, this, the injury was a line drive off the arm, so maybe it's just a bruise. you got to wonder if this is wishful thinking. I know we've already dropped him significantly uh, um, in terms of his projected innings pitched at our site. Uh, I think he's down to 7, 7%, which is a lot. Um, but but Seattle really needs him, and I and and they're hoping it's just a ten day. It's going to be a ten day thing. Um, Felix Hernandez has been plugged back into the rotation. Uh, he's been a mess um, all year. Um, he's in Paxton's place. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez, who took Felix's place, he's not that good. Um, when it's all said and done, um, um, Seattle really needs really needs James Paxton to come back, and 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 uh, this is this is going to be a 
a week-to-week thing, I think. Well, I remember hearing the news. I was listening to a different game on, on the radio, and they said, oh, James Paxson's on the deal with uh, some kind of deal going on with his left forearm. And, Jock, you and I and uh, most of our listeners, I'm sure, as well, will know that uh, anytime you hear the word forearm, your mind immediately jumps to elbow uh, because so oftentimes the uh, forearm is some kind of precursor to elbow problems and to Tommy John problems, but it really turns out that it's not that kind of thing. He was hit by a comebacker on the left arm and got a deep bruise, so maybe, maybe there's reason for optimism here. Yeah, I think there is. I was a little bit surprised that we have him down as many innings as we do, but uh, and again, I'm not... I'm doing the calculations in my head. He's going to miss 10 days. Uh, My take is that he will be back in 10 days. Also in Seattle, Robinson Cano is back from his 80-game suspension for violating the uh, PED policy in Major League Baseball. And the Mariners said that they wanted to keep D. Gordon at second base rather than the outfield. He struggled out there despite his terrific speed. They've got Cam Mabin out there uh, playing center field as well, but it's starting to look a little crowded. Uh, You and I speculated in past shows as to some of this, but now that it's all here, Cano's back, Gordon's there. Uh, Cam Mabin's there. How does Cano's return affect Seattle's lineup? Well, it's kind of interesting. The second game Cano was back, they actually put him at second base and they moved D. Gordon back to center field. So um, you're right, it is getting a little bit crowded over there. I don't think they want to bench Ryan Healy um, at first base uh, permanently. I think he's second on the team in home runs. He's had some uh, some hit rate luck, has entered into that 235 batting average he's carrying. Um And we talked about this before. I think Cano's going to play all over. I think he's going to play some first base, some second base. uh, um, And the word is, I mean, he he may get some third base in place of uh, Kyle Seager, too. Kyle Seager has had a similar year to um, uh, um, Ryan Healy. In fact, he's been a little bit worse. Um, And as I wrote in my playing time uh, tomorrow column this week, D. Gordon hasn't exactly been gangbusters out there at the plate. Uh, um, entering uh, entering this week, he had a, a .257 uh, batting average and .290 on base percentage through 142nd half at bats. They've dropped him down to the end of the lineup. Um, his 2% walk rate is is pretty terrible, and, and as you and I both know, he has no power, so he's really dependent on speed and hit rate luck, and it's not working out for him this year. Uh, this year. And I understand why. I traded for him, and uh, he immediately got that ball off his foot. I think he broke a bone in his foot. He then, uh, a little later on, after he got back from that, he slid into second head first and jammed his shoulder. So uh, I think D. Gordon is primarily having the problem of just being nicked and hurt and hurt and nicked. You know, nothing so serious that you can't, uh, that you that you can write him off, but at the same time serious enough that it's definitely cutting into his ability to play. Yeah, he's going to need some rest, and uh, like you said, he's had ankle injuries. Recently, he's had a shoulder injury that's kept him out games. He's had back issues. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of dings for D. Gordon, and, and we still have six weeks left, so he's going to need some time off, and I'm sure Cano's going to try to take advantage of that. Well, it might be the best thing for D. Gordon if the if the uh, Mariners want to get into the playoff race and they, they're kind of sniffing around the edges with the hot streak that Oakland's been on. And now the Astros, as we said, are starting to recover. So uh, if Seattle's got any 
sort of legitimate hopes of getting into the playoffs. They're going to have to get everything going that they can. And I think that includes D. Gordon uh, running the bases, if nothing else. But he's going to have to start drawing some walks as well. Terrible news in Cleveland, Jock. Uh, Trevor Bauer, who is starting to be discussed as a Cy Young candidate, he's having a tremendous year. Uh, goes on the DL. He's got a stress fracture in his lower right leg, the fibula bone. Uh, this couldn't be worse timing for the uh, Indians, could it? No, it really couldn't. Uh, fortunately for the Indians, they have a pretty good rotation. Um, but this is a little bit similar to the Paxton injury in that there's there's really no certainty here. There's a lot more uncertainty, I think, with Bauer. Um, he's likely to miss a lot more time, primarily because the Indians have a big lead. They don't want to bring him back too fast and jeopardize his chances for the playoffs. I wouldn't be surprised to see him out for three weeks to four weeks and maybe not come back till till mid-September. Or even if the injury is, is worse than we think, uh, he might not be back until until the playoffs. And, and like you said, he was really good. 2.22 ERA, 11.6 uh, strikeouts uh, per nine through 166 innings. Um, it's going to be real interesting uh, uh, to see when he comes back. Uh, Shane Bieber obviously gets a more permanent role in the rotation. He's been uh, he's been good at times, but uh, he's I think what a, a, a uh, an ERA of um, 4.37, expected ERA 3.76. He's nothing like uh, like Trevor Bauer. Adam Plutko is actually going to take Bauer's spot in the rotation, and he's he can be ignored. Uh, he's got a, a four point uh, Seven five ERA. And he's actually out pitching his expected ERA, which is never good news. Um, that they will miss. Uh, they will miss Trevor Bauer. I think his fantasy owners will miss him more, though. You know, the stat that jumps out at me about Trevor Bauer is his uh, PQS dominance versus disaster score. 64% of his starts PQS dominant, which means a score of 4 or 5 on the 5-point scale. Just 4% disasters. It's probably only one start all year, if uh, my math is working. Uh, the interesting thing about Bieber, uh, he's clearly not going to take Bauer's spot in that regard, but he has really good skills. Uh, 142 base performance value, a kind of a combined stat that takes in all the skill measures, and he's only walked less than two guys per uh, nine innings in his 11 starts. I think Shane Bieber is probably owned in a lot of uh, leagues, especially in AL onlys. But I think if you're in a mixed, this might be an opportunity if Bieber's in your free agent pool to take a long look. Yeah, I agree. Bieber's a strike thrower. I'd have to look under the hood to see what's up with that uh, expected ERA of 3.76. But he's not only a strike thrower with a good control, he has a 9.4 dom and he's getting a a 12% swinging strike rate. So uh, interesting guy, agree. And one other thing uh, to keep in mind, uh, the the, uh, Cleveland club is going to be in the playoffs. They know they're going to be in the playoffs. And you mentioned that they're going to leave Trevor Bauer out until they're 100% sure that he's ready to go. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they bring him back maybe with a start or two left in the regular season just so he can get back into the swing of things, I don't know that they would want to have his first start back from the injury be in the playoffs when so much is on the line. No, I agree with that. I think ideally he comes back and makes at least a couple of starts. Um, but I think they err on caution. And that's why I don't think he's going to be back until mid-September, uh, depending on how this thing goes. Worst case scenario is they have to keep him out for the rest of the year and then try to bring him back in the playoffs. And if that's the route they go, you're going to have to accept that uh, Trevor Bauer's in trouble because there's no way that would be their preferred method of doing it, as I said. Uh, 
Earlier on, I was talking with Justin Mason from Rotographs, and one of the names that came up in the discussion was Taylor Ward, a uh, recent call-up in Anaheim. That's your neck of the woods. I know what uh, Justin said about Taylor Ward. He's quite enthusiastic. Uh, y- what, are you, what do you think? You've been uh, an Angels follower forever, and uh, now you see this Taylor Ward. What's your take? You know, he's the best that the Angels have right now, and I'm and I'm I'm probably a little more mixed on Taylor Ward than than most than most people are. Love what he's done this year. He's obviously had a breakout system uh, season since the move from catcher to third base. So they talk about how it unlocked his uh, his athleticism and and even his power at the plate. I'm looking at his power numbers. He he. I think he had he had double digit home runs once uh, back in 2016 and 466 at bats at high A at 10 home runs. This year he has 14 at bats uh, in 300 or I'm sorry 14 home runs and 375 at bats. So he's he's produced some power. His batting average is way up uh, uh, 349 in the minors between high A and double A. I think that's the biggest improvement. Um, he has always had the good plate schools or uh, the good plate skills. What's really the revelation to me has been his base running, 18 stolen bases uh, in, in 21 attempts. The problems that I see is 14 home runs in a 375 at-bats, particularly when you played um, half of that or more than half of that in Salt Lake City, um, which is a big hitter's park. That That's not real indicative of a, of a lot of power. Um, and the strikeouts still worry me, 94 strikeouts in 375 at-bats. Um, yeah, the, the walks kind of mitigate that. It is a broad skill set. I'm, I'm just still wondering how much of it's going to play at the major league level. Um, I certainly think he's worth a flyer, and he's going to get a whole bunch of playing time down the stretch. Um, he's going to get an audition for third base. Uh, what he does now, what him and both David Fletcher do, are going to have a lot of uh, input into the Angels' uh, winter offseason. So he's an interesting guy. Something of a vote of confidence for Ward is that they released Luis Valbuena, who had been playing a little bit of third base. They've got uh, Marte out there as well. Jeffrey Marte has been playing some third base. Uh, I don't know that they think that much of him, uh, but they also have uh, an infield jam-up forming with Zach Cozart still under contract for two more years. He'll be back next year. And uh, then they've got the $80 million ban at first base. Uh, and uh, what are they going to do with all these infielders? Well, this is why I think these last few months are interesting. Ever since the uh, the Ian Kinsler trade, that you, you, they actually moved Fletcher from third base. He'd been the most of the time third baseman for about three weeks there um, before Kinsler was traded. Uh, third base is not his natural position. They've moved him over to second. So both him and uh, and Taylor Ward are getting auditions. And like you mentioned, they have Zach Cozart coming out coming back. Zach Cozart is pretty flexible, and his bat may play a little better at second base than it does third base. Um, I think one of Fletcher or, or um, Ward uh, is going to be in a real good position to have a starting job at the beginning of next year, and, and some of that's going to be determined now. It's always interesting to start thinking about those kind of things in keeper and dynasty formats especially. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for the intel. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. We'll see you then. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office column, Ray Murphy discusses innovating around the catcher pool. 
Nobody in swim trunks, so get that image out of your head. In playing time tomorrow, HQ analyst Brian Slack looks ahead at roster moves in the National League West, including bullpen questions for surprisingly competitive Colorado, the catchers in Los Angeles, the San Francisco rotation, and more. And in facts and flukes, HQ analyst Brian Rudd validates the performance of five National League players, including Matt Carpenter, Andrew McCutcheon, and Jeremy Jeffress. And analyst Greg Pyron has the deep look at L.A. outfielder Jock Peterson in the facts and flukes spotlight. And those are just four articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. I mentioned the player performance validation in Facts and Flukes. We have news updates in Playing Time Today and roster forecasts in Playing Time Tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis, injury analysis, plus tools like player projections, the daily dashboard, and leading indicators. All content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and leading off the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Minnesota outfield prospect Alex Kirilov is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Minnesota Twins' Alex Kirilov continues to emerge as one of the most well-rounded prospects in baseball. The 20-year-old Kirilov missed all of the 2017 season recovering from Tommy John surgery and is more than making up for the lost time. Kirilov has a sweet lefty stroke with an advanced understanding of the strike zone and emerging raw power. He's a fringe average runner but looks fully recovered from elbow surgery and should be able to stick in right field once he reaches the majors. Kirilov makes consistent hard contact, posting an 84% contact rate. He's dominated at two different levels this year and for the year is slashing 347 with a 389 on base percentage and a 581 slugging percentage with 39 doubles and 17 home runs and 444 at-bats between low and high A. Long-term, if Alex Kirilov can continue to improve his walk rate, he has the potential to be a middle-of-the-order hitter and should be rostered in all deep ale-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Pittsburgh shortstop Kevin Newman. Used to be a Canadian TV news anchor by that name. Probably not the same guy. The Angels right-hander Ty Buttre, Miami outfielder Austin Dean, and all the other call-ups as they come. And in the eyes have it. HQ scout Chris Blessing looks at three prospects the Orioles acquired in their deadline sell-off. Left-hander D.L. Hall. Hmm, don't know if you want a pitcher named D.L., do you? A shortstop Caden Grenier and third baseman Gene Carlos Encarnacion. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com gives you the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is San Diego right-handed starter Jacob Nix, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Get a decent number of strikeouts and walk nobody. That's a pattern of 22-year-old San Diego Padres starter and Southern California native 
Jacob Nix, according to our own Nick Richards in the August 10th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. According to Nick, in the same article, Jacob Nix has improved his control as he moved up through the minors. Having started only one game at AAA El Paso before making his Major League debut against the Philadelphia Phillies at Petco Park on August 10th, Jacob Nix turned more than a few heads by pitching six scoreless on his way to earning his first Major League victory. The former third-round draft pick by the Padres in 2015, Jacob Nix has produced a career 385 ERA in the minors while matriculating quickly. In fact, Jacob Nix has produced a sparkling 184 ERA through two levels of the minors in 2018, but more importantly, Jacob Nix has only walked nine batters total in the minors in 2018. That's right, in almost 60 minor league innings pitched in 2018, Jacob Nix has only walked nine batters while striking out 44. Remember what Nix said? Get a decent number of strikeouts and walk nobody. Well, 44 strikeouts in 60 innings is a pretty decent number of strikeouts, and with nine walks plus a whip under one, he's basically walked nobody. Don't you wish every pitcher adopted this approach? Absolutely. However, please keep in mind that Jacob Nix has only pitched in 16 games above single A, so certainly there will be bumps on the road, experiences to gain, and there are no guarantees they will stick in the Padres' rotation. That's why Jacob Nix, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, his numbers should grab your attention. With a command ratio of 5.3 strikeouts to walks in 2018 through two levels of the minors, plus his Major League debut, Jacob Nix is well above, almost double, our command ratio benchmark of three strikeouts to walks as used by BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Proving once again that Nick Richards' description of get a decent number of strikeouts and walk nobody is extremely accurate when it comes to Jacob Nix. Nailed it! In fact, our own Rob Gordon mentioned then-high school pitcher Jacob Nix as a possible first-round talent in his Miners 2015 first-year player draft preview way back on June 5th, 2015. In other words, we at BaseballHQ.com have been watching Jacob Nix for a long time. And you should be watching and adding Jacob Nix, too, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, and a whole bunch of other places. And he's coming up on this place, Baseball HQ Radio. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league
Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs and all those other places. Justin, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. I, I, I'm glad I wasn't traded mid-podcast. <laughs> you recently mentioned Tyler Glasnow uh, in some of your work. Uh, he had a ton of command issues in Pittsburgh, uh, notwithstanding the Ray Searage magic. But since he's come to Tampa, he's been a different guy. They, he's cut his ERA in half. His walk rate's cut more than half. I think he's got his whip under 1.0. His strikeouts, which were already pretty good, are way up. And his strikeout to walk rate is triple what it was in Pittsburgh. But the Rays aren't using Tyler Glasnow as a starter, nor as a traditional reliever. What do you think about how they're using uh, Tyler Glasnow in Tampa so far? I'm really interested in this case because the the types of things that Tampa Bay has been doing it go obviously goes against uh, your traditional baseball convention and logic and. Um, I'm interested to see if they can make it work with some of these guys. And and Glasnow is he, there's no denying his talent. The dude is got a serious magic behind that arm when things are right. The problem is he's never been able to keep things right long term. But maybe the way that they're going to do that is by limiting his exposure, by figuring out the best uh, ways to use him. Uh, you know, maybe he's just never a guy that goes a third time through a lineup. And if he can get through four or five innings for their club, he can be pretty value uh, valuable for them from a uh, from a real baseball perspective. And so far, not only has he been successful, but he's been successful while they're continuing to lengthen him out. So his first start with the Rays, he went three innings. Second start, he went four innings. And his most recent start against the Blue Jays, he went five innings. And he has a total of three walks over that uh, time, which is huge. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, and I was pretty negative uh, on glass now uh, coming into the season and actually really after this trade. Uh, but I still think it was a great trade for the Rays. I just I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to trust him to re- properly repeat his mechanics and, and turn into the stud that I think a lot of people want. But uh, I think he can still be very valuable even if they kind of come up with these uh, out-of-the-box strategies to employ him. Your colleague at Fangraphs, Kylie McDaniel, had a piece that speculated that the Rays' willingness to use Glasnow in this fashion is a really smart move. As you suggest, they're, they're, uh, they're doing something smart with the talent they have. And what Kylie said in the column was, this is a case of somebody looking at their people and making a strategy rather than coming up with a strategy and forcing it on their people. And it does seem to make a ton of sense. And my question is always about this. If it works it will start to be copied. We can pretty much guarantee that, right? Especially uh, the the other teams that have limited resources financially can't compete for the Chris Sales and Corey Klubers when they enter free agency. But this seems like a way that they can get the job done in an unconventional manner, and it will get repeated. And when that happens, Justin, I wonder how are we going to be able to adjust our theories of valuation for pitchers based on the fact that guys like Tyler Glasnow may not start games, but may come in and win 22 games in that second pitcher role? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting for fantasy because, uh, I mean, you're going you're gonna to run into all sorts of issues and, and ways that you can maybe strategize around the fact that, uh, 
you know, guys aren't starting, but they're, they're they're pitching the majority of the innings, and so leagues with starts limits are going to uh, have kind of these guys who are loophole guys. So, will teams start putting innings limits as opposed to starts limits uh, in their leagues? I mean, these are these are questions that each individual league should kind of sit down as a group and discuss and figure out how they're going to work out because uh, I don't think that this is necessarily going away and. While this is a newer, you know, kind of phenomenon, we've seen a lot of bullpenning in in recent years where starters aren't going longer, anyways. That bullpens are becoming a a, a more impactful part of each individual game, um, and so I think while this is an extreme escalation, we've been seeing some of kind of the writing on the wall that maybe this kind of stuff uh, could be coming down the pike for a while. And I don't just I just don't think that we as a baseball industry, we as a fantasy industry thought it would be ratcheted up to this level this quickly. Um, and teams will copy it. Teams are going to uh, try it, especially, like you said, if, it, if it's successful and Tampa Bay is able to uh, work it uh, in a way that is beneficial to the team. Teams are going to try this, uh, especially with the lower end guys. And so it'll be interesting to see uh for me, I'm I'm less interested in seeing how teams necessarily approach it, but I want to see like does this have any effect on free agency? Do you know if multiple teams start trying this, do players go, "Well, I don't want to play for this team because I'm not going to be able to start here." <laughs> like, is this going to make a bigger uh, disparity between teams like Tampa Bay and the lower markets and the teams like? New York or Boston who can pay these guys lots of money and maybe won't go this unconventional route. So uh, that's interesting. I think it's interesting uh, the effect it's going to have on a fantasy game, especially in terms of innings. Innings already being down for starting pitchers uh, than they were a few years ago. Uh, what does this kind of thing do? It, it's it's kind of a huge mess, and I kind of love it because I think it gives people a chance in fantasy to try different strategies and do things that are a little bit more outside of the box because you can get away with things. I was thinking about the uh, the free agency angle as well, and I, I can kind of see that it would have more benefits than drawbacks for a lot of pitchers, maybe more pitchers than for whom the reverse would be true. So a pitcher might say, I want to go someplace where I can be a standard starting pitcher. But a guy like Tyler Glasnow can't say that because he's been a regular starting pitcher and he stinks. And he can't go into an arbitration hearing and say, look at me, I'm a, I'm a terrific starter. They can go, you know, you barely get through five five innings per start. Your ERA is six. Your WHIP is one ninety. You know, you walk seven guys a game or whatever his stats were. You're terrible. Whereas, if he's used properly in this Tampa context, he can go in there and say, "Yes, I didn't start games, but I my ERA was two point four. My WHIP was one point oh one. I got seventeen wins. You know, I pitched hundred and seventy five innings in this quasi relief, quasi starting role." And I was a hugely effective pitcher. And I think the advanced metrics would probably back that up when you talk about uh, wins above replacement, right? Because those those calculations don't take into account whether the guy started a game or relieved a game. They just look at how many guys he got out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'll be interested to see what it does in terms of uh, arbitration hearings. You know, arbitration hearings have always been a battle of, uh, you know, one side trying to frame the argument one way, one side trying to frame the argument the other way. Um, And they've used pretty traditional measures 
uh, to try to frame those arguments. And so if you're a team like Tampa Bay, is this beneficial for you in the arbitration process where they have a lot of guys who are going to be, uh, you know, that's how they're going to make their money because they end up trading away a lot of their uh, stud talents uh, that uh, get too expensive for them. So are they able to use this to their advantage where they go, well, you're not really a starter, so you don't really deserve starter money. And the, and the, the younger guy's like, yeah, but you're using me five innings a game. You're just not starting me in the first because you're doing this opener thing. So like, I wonder if this is uh, something that the team will be able to use to, to their benefit, if it's going to cause resentment with players, if... if you know, when you start mixing up the traditional stuff in uh, in in baseball, people tend to get upset and people tend to uh, start yelling and screaming. And I I can only imagine uh, when money starts being affected one way or another, uh, how how people are going to start viewing this within the game. So uh, I, I'm really interested to see the drama unfold with that. One other aspect of it and, uh, that I was thinking about uh, largely because of what uh, Kylie McDaniel wrote was that uh, it also gives teams the chance to use their pitchers on shorter rest because they're not pitching uh, as many pitches in our, any particular outing. So their frequency can go up even as possibly their innings per appearance uh, decline. And uh, that hasn't happened so far for Tyler Glasnow. I think he's been pitching pretty much on starter rest. But if, if you could figure out a way to get a guy like this successfully pitching with three days rest instead of five, all of a sudden you're looking at 55 to 60 appearances instead of 30 to 33. And even if he only goes three innings per start, that's 165, 170 innings, which is more than he's going to get as a starter unless he you know, completely reforms his game and possibly even higher. It, could we be uh, on the verge of seeing some kind of Mike Marshall type of pitching coming back into the big leagues where a relief pitcher comes in and uh, often enough, if not long enough to throw 210 innings? I think that we're moving that way, that we're going to start seeing these guys that uh, um, I think Lenny Melnick has uh, uh, kind of titled an effector where, you know, it's a guy who comes in for three or four innings uh, and, you know, whether he is, uh, you know, usually is a reliever, um, but he just comes in, he can't, he's not going to turn over the lineup, you know, multiple times, you know, he may get, you know, once or twice through a, a lineup, uh, but they're not going to trust them ever to go through three times. You're never going to see them pitch five innings or six innings. Um, and so I, I think we're moving towards that. And little by little, we're going to start seeing guys who have been known as these guys who can't start that for you know whatever reason, whether it's their mechanics, whether they tire out, um, that they're just more effective in these three inning stretches. Uh, and I think that's going to become a bigger part of the game. Which will be interesting because we'll see, uh, you know, just like whenever a part of the game changes, it has a huge effect on fantasy. And, you know, if these guys are, you know, doing more appearances, like like you say, uh, you know, how does that affect your fantasy league? Well, what if they're not doing more appearances and they're not appearing 50 times uh, a season? They're only appearing in the, you know, typical, you know, 28 to 32 uh, starts a year, you know, that drops their inning total. So what does that do to the fantasy game? I think there's a lot of things that uh, are going to change the fantasy game year to year, which, you know, puts a little bit more strain on, on us fantasy analysts, but also I think makes the game a little bit more fun and allows people to develop new strategies. 
It does, uh, and I bet you the the price of a pitcher like Justin Verlander, who can get through three uh, times through the lineup, would skyrocket in real baseball and in fantasy baseball. Uh, another pitcher who has benefited greatly, Justin, from uh, change of venue has been Kevin Gosman, who's looked much better in Atlanta than he had been looking in Baltimore, but you were only cautiously optimistic about the improvements. What do you think we should be looking for with Kevin Gosman as we assess him not just for this year, but for the future in uh, Atlanta? Well, apparently Atlanta uh, saw something in Kevin Gosman, a mechanical flaw or issue, and they moved him on the rubber uh, to to a different spot and are working on him with his mechanics. And like you said, so far, so good. Um, Here's the problem with Kevin Gosman. I've seen this story before. Like, I've seen him, oh, he's made an adjustment, and now he's good again. And, you know, he finishes out the year strong, and, and everybody goes crazy because we love the underlying talent. Uh, and, I, you know, I mean, I've been a huge Kevin Gosman supporter for a very long time, and I've been burnt over and over and over again. And so this time I'm going to be more cautiously optimistic uh, or, or more cautious with it uh, than uh, just kind of buying straight back in on the hype. It, you know, the, the things that are interesting right now are that uh, he is uh, he's going fairly you know the last two starts he's gone fairly deep into the game eight innings pitch and then six innings pitch um, you know he isn't walking necessarily a ton of guys but you know there's a huge difference in the eight inning start against Milwaukee only struck out uh, eight or he struck out eight guys in the six inning start versus Miami he only struck out two so like that's an interesting uh, uh, kind of dichotomy and I'm very. I'm very cautious because when things go bad with Kevin Gosman, they go really bad. Um, and he's not been a guy that hasn't been able to not continue to kind of get out of whack uh, and tinker with things and, and, and change when things are going right. So I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to trust him completely, but I probably won't be able to quit him completely either. A similar story in Arizona a week or so ago, you wrote very positively about right-hander Clay Buchholz, 267 ERA, a 114 whip at the time, 64 innings. So first, let me ask you how you think fantasy owners should be looking at Buchholz for the rest of this year and again as we look ahead to 2019. Well, 2019, I, I, I'm not going to worry too much about him. He, he's 34 years old. Uh, he's, uh, you know, just just recently turned 34 years old. Um, so next season will be his, you know, age 35 season. Uh, what you're seeing is a nice little resurgence uh, this year based on, I believe, uh, the re- kind of return uh, and redevelopment of his cutter. Uh, it's been uh, it's been fun to watch, and I think he definitely benefits a little bit from the the humidor uh, in uh, in Arizona, giving him uh, some better feel for that pitch, uh, especially. Um, but at the end of the day, like I don't know how sustainable this is long term. I'm just riding the hot streak and enjoying kind of uh, what he's been doing so far. Um, I, I I'm not going to worry about you know, what this does for a 35-year-old pitcher coming into the 2019 season. But I think rest of the way, he can be a guy who is a mid-threes, mid-to-high threes ERA guy uh, that's, you know, striking out seven uh, uh, per nine um, and really just keeping guys off the base paths and not giving up home runs, which has been key to his success so far 
you know, is he a stud? But no, but these are one of these guys that, you know, are the back ends of your rotation may still be out there available because other people in your leagues have kind of gotten lackadaisical with football coming up or, uh, or they're buried in the standings and so they're not really being active. You know, they can kind of carry you through the end of your season or through your fantasy playoffs if you're playing in a head-to-head format. Justin, the, the fine baseball writer Joe Sheehan, uh, a friend of this show, uh, here, appears here often, and he's talked in the past about the danger of narrative. And when we see a story like Clay Buchholz, a formerly useful pitcher, turns awful, now rebounding in his mid-30s, the temptation for us is to look for a pattern to see if there's a story with Buchholz that we can apply to the stories of other guys who sort of seem to fit his general profile, fallen on hard times, coming back. And we think to themselves, well, if Clay Buchholz did it and this was the pattern that it occurred, then when Joe Bloggs does it, this is going to be the pattern that occurs with him too. And that's a dangerous <laughs> thing. Is there any common thread in the narratives, though, that we might be able to use to pick out the next Clay Buchholz? I mean, these guys always appear, you know, here and there. But for for every Clay Buckholz that reappears, or every Rich Hill that reappears, um, there are you know five or six guys who try to come back and just get absolutely shellacked, and and it doesn't work out. Um, I'm not a narrative guy. I tend to make fun of narratives uh, for the most part. I think uh, that kind of stuff is. Uh, what fans want to hear? Uh, they they want to hear the story behind something, or um, you know, or, or have something to root for. And at the end of the day, um, while that may be kind of a, a fun sideshow, it's not super meaningful. You know, the clubhouse chemistry is is the reason this team is competing. Well, you know, this team is competing because they're you know putting the bat on the ball or, or making people swing and miss when they're on the mound. Um, it, you know that 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 clubhouse chemistry stuff, uh, while it can have an intangible effect, is exactly that. It's intangible, and it, it, you can't really quantify it. And so, I'm not going to try. I, I don't. I don't buy into a ton of narratives. And finally, Justin, what do you make of the Dodgers' uh, circumstances with injuries and uh, other factors have forced them to play a bit of musical chairs with regards to their rotation and bullpen, moving guys in, moving guys out, up and down from the bullpen to the rotation to the DL and back? Uh, How do you think that their approach to managing workload in this fashion uh, affects how fantasy players should be looking at the pitchers in the Dodgers' staff? Oh, it's really hard because there's a ton of talent in that in that Dodgers staff, uh, but like I don't I I don't know how much I trust anything right now outside of maybe Kershaw and Wood, uh, because I think both those guys are staying in the rotation no matter what. But right now, Walker Buehler's in the rotation. How long does that happen? I mean, he's, he's a young kid who's had a Tommy John surgery um, and ha- has dealt with some issues this year, coming up on uh, you know the most amount of innings he's ever thrown if, if he hasn't already passed it. So uh, I was actually surprised that he wasn't the guy that moved to the bullpen and they moved Stripling and Maeda. I, I thought they'd move uh, maybe Stripling and, and Buehler and... Uh, keep Maeda in in the rotation. That still may change around, or you may see a bunch of these guys kind of go back and forth between uh, the the rotation and the bullpen, especially considering the losses the bullpens faced. You know, they've lost K 
Kenley Jansen uh, recently. Um, you know, they don't have Daniel Hudson or, or John Axford's gone now. So Tony Singrani's gone now. Josh Fields is on the DL. You know, and so this may be more about they've got a strength in the rotation and, and they really need to bolster that bullpen and which guys uh, do that for them. So that being said, from a fantasy perspective, uh, I think if if your guy is stripling and your guy is made and they've already been moved into the bullpen, you got to hold on and hope that at some point they move back up into the rotation. And all the guys in the rotation right now have dealt with injury issues uh, this year. So it isn't too far-fetched to think that one of them may get thrown back into the rotation. But if you've got one of these guys who are in the rotation currently, this may be the time to try to sell and get from you know under one of these guys before they either get hurt again or get moved down to the bullpen if they start flip-flopping them. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Justin Mason from Rotographs and many other places. Uh, Justin, as you know, we ask our expert here at Baseball HQ Radio to talk about players you might think will be boons and banes for the uh, rest of the fantasy season, about 40 games or so to go. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, in the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a boon down the stretch? All right, I, I, I'm going, I don't know if this was the guy I mentioned. No, I definitely, oh, I might have mentioned him actually last time I was on. Uh, and I keep mentioning him. And of course, he just came off the DL. So uh, it may be, uh, it, it may, you know, take a minute for him to get the rust off. But similar to Oscar Hernandez, who's high up on a lot of the StatCast leaderboards, uh, so is Tommy Pham. And he's uh, left that situation in St. Louis. Uh, where he was obviously not happy with the organization. He gets to go to a forward-thinking organization in the Rays. Uh, it's going to play every day. Uh, you know, He's in the top 5% of exit velocities uh, and top 7% of hard hit percentage. Uh, dude barrels the ball up, plays good defense. I really like Tommy Pham to kind of get back on track and uh, do uh, a lot of what we saw last year, which was hit home runs and steal bases. And how about in the National League, who's a Boone hitter? You know, this is uh, the guy that is probably benefiting the most from Tommy Pham being traded, and that's Tyler O'Neill uh, getting a chance to play more regularly now that Pham has been sent to Tampa Bay. Uh, he's got a little bit of swing and miss to his game, but dude has real power, uh, and I think as long as this uh, groin issue that he was having uh, doesn't uh, flare back up, uh, he could uh, he could really break out. It, one of the top prospects uh, for the for the Cardinals was part of the Marco Gonzalez trade uh, to Seattle. I, I really like Tommy Pham to uh, uh, kind of come into his own and maybe establish himself as the ev- an everyday outfielder for next season. Good Canadian kid as well. Got to like that uh, American League pitcher who could be a boon. This was hard for me. Like I didn't want to take an obvious guy, so. I went with an unobvious guy, and he kind of fits the role of what we uh, what we talked about uh, in this segment with Tampa Bay and guys that they're trying to do different things with. And so it's it's Jalen Beeks. Uh, Beeks is a guy that you know when you're watching him, his stuff doesn't necessarily jump off the page, but he's got a you know a good enough fastball, uh, a a good curveball, a good changeup, and good enough command. I think he could be kind of like one of those guys that is in the middle or the back end of your fantasy rotation and really just provides you quality innings down the stretch. Um, 
like I said, he's not going to win your league, but he's definitely not going to hurt you, and he's going to accumulate for you. Uh, and so I, I like Jalen Beeks as my uh, AL pitcher. And in the column I mentioned earlier with Kylie McDaniel talked about the various kinds of pitchers that Tampa seemed to be grooming for that um, middle pitching role. And Jalen Beeks was one of them, uh, and so was Glasnow, because of the contrast. Power pitcher versus finesse, the kind of junk baller. And you throw one of these guys in uh, on Saturday and the other guy in on Sunday, and you really, uh, really mess up the minds of the opposing hitters. Who's a National League pitcher who could be a boon? All right, this one kind of goes against what I was just saying a little while ago. But yeah, Hyunjin Ryu uh, is back off the DL, and when he was healthy, he was fantastic. Uh, his first start back was really, uh, really good against the Giants. Um, and there's a real chance he could just stay in the rotation uh, rest of the year as long as he's healthy. And uh, I think he's available in the majority of non-NL only leagues, so in the majority of mixed leagues. So. I think Ryu is worth taking a shot on right now. Justin Mason's Boons, Tam- Tommy Pham of Tampa, Tyler O'Neill of St. Louis, Jalen Beeks of Tampa, and Hyun Jin Ryu of Los Angeles. Let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious the rest of the way. Again, in the American League, we'll start with a hitter who's a Bane hitter for you for the rest of the year. It's Greg Bird, and I think we just need to get around the fact that Greg Bird is just not that good um, and may never be. But definitely for this year, I think there's some people who are uh, hopeful that maybe he can go on one of his stretches. Since the All-Star break, dude's hitting 217, 287, 313, has one home run. Uh, the Yankees are trying to win, uh, and with their loss of loss of Aaron Judge, they can't afford to put multiple slouches into the lineup. So uh, Greg Bird is a guy that I just want nothing to do with. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? All right, this is a guy that has been fantastic all season, surprisingly, and I think people maybe just slept on him. I, I was one of them. Uh, Matt Kemp, uh, you know, he's hit 17 home runs this year. He's hitting 282. But, man, since the All-Star break, he has been absolutely dreadful. Uh, and you have to wonder if the amount he's been playing is catching up with him. I mean, he's a dude with uh, arthritic hips. Um, that hasn't, you know, or has had trouble in recent years getting through entire seasons. Since the All Star break, he has two home runs. He's hitting 173, uh, 264, 280. Uh, I, I think I'm uh, trying to get out from under my shares of Matt Kemp right now. To the mound, uh, who's an American League pitcher you think is a bane? <clears throat> oh, man, this is hard because I've always loved Marcus Stroman in the past, but. Uh, I just, I just, he's given up such hard contact. The defense behind him isn't great, and he really relies on it uh, because of the high level of ground balls uh, that he's had. He's got a 63.4% ground ball rate, um, and he's just getting killed uh, with, with with a little bit of that defense behind him. I know he's been kind of up and down, and sometimes better as of late. But I just, I'm staying away from Marcus Stroman, uh, unfortunately. The other day I was watching a Jays game and their infield defense was Justin Smoke at first, Devon Travis at second, Aledmus Diaz at short, and Russell Martin, the catcher, playing third. And out of the four of them, Martin was the best defender, I think. Uh, Smoke can pick him at first, but uh, up the middle, that's not good. 
Yeah, I've always loved Russell Martin just because how many catchers do you know that could play second, shortstop, and third base? You know, and he's not a great defender when he's playing those positions necessarily, but he holds his own. Like, dude is just an athlete, and to be doing that in his mid-30s is is, uh, really impressive. I I love me some Russell Martin, but in terms of Marcus Stroman, those aren't the guys you want behind you when you're a ground ball ball pitcher, and... uh, you know, I, I hope the Jays can figure out something better defensively for future seasons because I really like Marcus Stroman uh, as a pitcher and a, as uh, as a person, uh, and I, I'd like to see him succeed again. Russell Martin also sporting a three forty nine on base percentage, so he'll kill you in the batting average leagues a two oh two, but he's a sixteen percent walk rate. So in an on base percentage league, he's actually a plus guy. And uh, gosh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he was a, a double digit stolen base guy while he was a catcher as well. You're right, a really good athlete, and I have to say it, another Canadian guy. Uh, finally, a <laughs> National League pitcher who's a bane. Oh, man, this one hurts for me to say it because uh, I was kind of high on Chase Anderson coming into the season. But what made him special last year was the velocity. And it's it's been a while for him now since uh, uh, he's averaged over 92 or 93 miles an hour. So, um, I mean, he, ha- he hasn't had a uh, 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 an average fastball velocity um, of 93 miles an hour or more in any game since uh, July 4th. So, uh, and he's just getting hit around when he doesn't have that velocity, and and that's what made him look so special last season. Uh, and in that park, he's gonna continue to give up those home runs that he wasn't giving up last year uh, because he can't blow bypass guys. So, uh, Chase Anderson, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that he's got a sub four ERA uh, for the season. Uh, I, I don't want to really have much to do with rest of the way. When I was looking at Chase Anderson the other day, something jumped out at me, and I'm curious what you think of it. And that is uh, his ERA last year was 274. His ex-FIP was 433. His expected ERA was about the same. His Sierra, roughly the same. Uh, and this year, his uh, ERA is up to 397, still a, a, almost a full run under his ex-FIP and, and those other expected ERA measures. Is there such a thing as a pitcher who can just routinely un- outdo his uh, his expected ERA metrics? I think there are guys that um, that will uh, that will regularly beat their FIP or XFIP, uh, but I, I don't know that Chase Anderson is necessarily one of those guys. I think these you know may just be uh, more anomalies. Usually, they're guys like. Um, you know, former Brewer Marco Estrada, you know, is a guy that that typically will beat his FIP or XFIP because he does something uh, that is hard for those metrics to necessarily quantify. And you know, Marco Estrada has always been a guy who gets an abnormal amount of infield fly balls uh, w- with his pitches. So I think there are guys that do it. I don't know that I necessarily would believe that uh, that Chase Anderson is one of those yet, though. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You have to look behind the numbers and say, what is it about this guy that's causing him to have uh, an ERA that's so much lower than it should be? Quotes around the word "should," of course. And and Estrada's case is a great, great, great example because of the infield flies. Uh, Jared Weaver used to be much the same. Uh, Justin Mason, this has been uh, terrific. Tell our listeners where they can read more from you. 
oh, wow, you can read all my stuff either on Fangraphs, Fantasy Alarm, Friends with Fantasy Benefits. Uh, I think that's all my writing. You can hear me on um, Friends of Fantasy Benefits, the Sleeper in the Bus podcast, uh, Fantasy Sports Radio for the Tout Wars Hour on Sundays. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, that, I think that's about good for now. Just follow me on Twitter. You'll, you'll, you'll find me uh, and find all the work I'm doing. And your handle is at Justin Mason uh, FWFB. FWFB. Yeah, at Justin Mason FWFB. Um, also on uh, Facebook and, and pretty active there. So you can uh, go over there and, and friend me. Uh, and I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, I think I'm one of the few people in the industry uh, that leaves their DMs open and leaves their uh, their messenger open to people. And I, I try to get back to every single person uh, that uh, that reaches out to me. So uh, definitely uh, hit me up over on social media, and uh, uh, hopefully I can help you guys win uh, more fantasy leagues. Well, Justin, uh, as I expected it was going to be, it was sure a treat. Uh, very informative, very interesting, very entertaining. I do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Justin Mason writes and chats regularly at Fangraphs and Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Fantasy Alarm, and elsewhere. He's also the founder of the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, and he appears on at least two fantasy podcasts that I know about. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now I've been telling you for the last while about the 2018 edition of First Pitch Arizona. In Phoenix in November, here are three good reasons to consider taking the plunge and joining us. Reason number three, you get to join hundreds of fellow fantasy baseball fanatics and industry experts. Reason number two, you get three full days of seminars, panel discussions, breakout workshop sessions, fun and challenging drafts and other contests, and of course those Arizona Fall League ball games, including the Fall Stars All-Star Game. And reason number one, you can come join my guests and me for a live recording of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. And what more incentive do you need? Check it out at BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the Baseball HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo that you'll see on the right-hand side of the page underneath the Baseball HQ Radio package. See you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be back with you, Patrick. Got a couple of things I'd like to talk with you about this week, uh, starting with the Tout Wars Roundtable. Uh, every week you organize and then publish on the toutwars.com website a roundtable discussion of a lot of the different touts in all the different leagues, uh, 70 or 80 different touts. A uh, good third of them always participate uh, in uh, in each week's question. And this week it was about the ethics of how to how to encourage other people in your league to make moves if they're not making moves. Uh, maybe you could describe the question in detail and uh, was there any kind of consensus in the answers? Yeah, so yeah, you you, you kind of you, you hit on the topic. I left it general to, I, I I think I said something to the effect of, uh, what what contact is allowed between, or, or do you feel is, is uh, on the up and up between competing owners, specifically, um, an owner looking to win the title, uh, nudging, pinging, you know, uh, chiding an owner more at the bottom of the, 
of the uh, the league. You know, the, you know, maybe they're not making moves, or maybe they could make a trade that would help their team. You know, what what level of contact is necessary? Not necessary, but is is, is kosher? Is cool? Is it should be accepted? And um, I, you know, I'll, whenever I do one of these ethic or ab- more abstract as opposed to you know rank this player or whatever kind of question there's a reason for it it's usually because i'm asked similar i'm asked questions about it uh you know as far you know being in the industry and the whatnot from my experience you know can you you know this happened in my league what do you think etc and i just thought this would be an interesting one because we're getting towards the end of the year and i happen to get an email you know with the, the reader or one of my subscribers you know this just happened in my league should i do anything about it so um i wanted to tilt it more towards you know just what what's okay i mean if if you're trying to catch a, the first place team and you notice there's a team at the end probably not managing their team and they've got a couple injured pitchers or you know it, good you know a minor leaguer that was just called up on their reserve and they're not making moves is it okay for you to shoot them an email or talk to them or text or whatever uh you know expressing your desire for them to manage their team a little more diligently and if so how far can you take that can you actually suggest moves suggest players names teams to trade with or is simply a nudge all you want so you have this question, Todd, and you pose it to all the touts. Did their responses catch you by surprise? Coming into it, my if someone asked me, my answer would be I would send a note to the commissioner asking the commissioner or SWAT to do the dirty work, suggesting that they don't single out this particular person, but they just send a kind of a general note to the league. Hey, we got six or seven weeks left. We've we try, you know, everybody's been, uh, you know, breaking their butt all all season long. Let's keep it going. We just need another month and a half of your attention. You know, even if you're out of it, at the very least, make sure you have active lineups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I mean, some leagues have rules in place that you sort of have to do this. But this is, you know, a lot of leagues don't. So that would have been my approach. And uh, I, I think that that was the most, I don't know, uh, passive approach. And other people, I think the in the the middle was sure you can you can ping an owner you can tell you can ask an owner uh, directly or suggest or even get mad at them and tell them they should be managing their team it's you know and then there's some people that downright said if it's not against the rules you can do whatever you want you know don't 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 hack their password and do the moves for them but you can you can suggest you can suggest whatever you want it's up to the owner to do it but sure be uh Tell tell them to trade with with Team B for this player and and help in that stat category, and, you know that's fine. There's nothing against the rules. So I think that there was uh, I think the people on my end where we were which was kind of you, you know nothing do nothing and those that said pretty much anything goes were kind of around the same. And then the middle group was yeah there's no nothing wrong with contacting them, just don't manage their team. Yeah, I thought so too when I was looking through the answers that there was a kind of a continuum from people down at the the far end which said, uh, just leave them alone, it's their team, you have no business interfering with it, uh, through, a, through a whole bunch of guys that some of them said, let the commissioner take care of it or, you know, copy the commissioner on your emails, uh, just offer general nudges to say, like you said, you know, pick up your feet and start start making your moves just to, in the interest of the league, all the way up to the far end, uh, which is where I am, which is if it's not against the rules, it's it's fine with me. And uh, 
this brings up a question that uh, for one of the few times this year, I, I put in a comment and there was a direct response from a guy named Zola. And I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. So I'd like to uh, ask you more about it because we were constrained by, you know, nobody wants to read a yeah. hundred paragraphs about it, but they're going to listen to a hundred paragraphs about it now. I can tell you, uh, I, I said I think it depends on the league culture to a, to a large extent, and I, I had an anecdote about uh, 2006. I was leading my uh, AL only home league, and Bobby Abreu crossed leagues from Philly to the Yankees. Uh, I, some older guys might remember this, and he was a terrific player. It's a four by four league, and he was a four by four stud. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'd have got him, I had the hammer. If I'd have got him, I'd have coasted to a win in the league. The guy in second place contacted one of the also-rans and suggested a sequence of moves he could make had to do with acquiring a player who was who was traded out of the league, cashing in his fab, and he would sneak by me by a, a dollar or two in the fab so he could get Bobby Abreu, which is what he did. And uh, as a result, uh, to make a long story a little longer, he, uh, I finished second in the league by half a point to the guy who made the suggestion to the also-ran guy. And in the aftermath of that, the, the uh, guy who won the league contacted me and said, basically, uh, are you okay with this? And, and I said, you know, uh, I'm disappointed that it worked out that way, that we had an owner who had to be prodded into doing this. But it's within the rules. I, I really don't see that I have any cause for complaint. And then I, I, uh, I uh, canvassed the league and I said, what do you guys all think? And it was like nine to three said, if it's in the rules uh, or it's not uh, breaking the rules, then it's cool. And uh, so far, so good. I, I thought, okay. Later on, I was in a similar situation, not directly involved in another league, and nine out of the 12 owners said it was uh, beyond the pale, and I think you have to respect how the other guys in your league treat the rules as sacrosanct or whether there's these conventions or unwritten rules. And then you wrote back and said, I don't know, PD, I'd be livid. W- what, was, <laughs> what was your problem? I just, I, um, I think it's crossing the line when you actually manage a team, and, and to me, what the uh, what the second place owner did was was cross the line by suggesting actual moves, um, and to to me that to me that crosses the line. I said I, I kind of softened my stance in that I you know if even if the second place owner had said uh, even said something like you know there's ways for you to increase your fab so you could you know you could make a bigger play at the deadline. I you know I don't like I wouldn't like that, but to me that would be okay. Uh, but to actually say, well, turn in this guy, make a trade with this guy, and then you get Abreu, that that to me is managed as if it's a co-manager. And 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 the part that the part in 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 Gene McCaffrey, are, you know, frequent guests on the show, and you know, uh, good friend of both of ours, kind of you know was in your court, and that you both said something to the effect of, if it's not against the rules, it's fair game. And I guess in my mind. I mean, to me, having a rule in the actual constitution that says one owner cannot actively manage another owner's team is is basically rhetorical. I don't, I, I didn't, I wouldn't think it's necessary for that rule to be there. So to me, I mean, it's it's I don't want, you know unwritten rules, the cliche or whatever. But to me, it's just it's just you don't do it. It's it's, it's you don't you don't need a rule to tell. And one owner, you know, to to prohibit one owner from actively managing another owner's team. I guess maybe we do. I mean, if, if some people, and I'm and not, you know, maybe, I don't think this is a black, white, right, wrong. I think this is an interpretation, opinion, philosophy sort of thing. And if I'm if I'm in a league and, and the league b- believes that that's okay, and I'm the commissioner and I don't want that in my league, I'm going to write a rule that says one team is not allowed to 
in effect, manage another team by suggesting specific moves involving specific names and specific teams. Uh, but the, the other one of the points you made to me is sort of the, the overriding point. It's the culture of the league. Something that some uh, one of the one or two of the touts mentioned was it's okay to do that kind of co-managing or management by proxy or whatever you want to call it if the if the team B asks the team A for the advice. And so my question to you is, if the Ulceran team in my scenario had asked the second place team, what do you think I should do to improve my team? And then the second place team had offered this advice, which was, you know, it, it's good advice. You can get Bobby Abreu. You and and the Alsoran team did move up a couple of notches because of it in the standings from ninth to seventh or whatever the case might be. But it was clearly also self-serving, and uh, and I wonder does it change or would it change your opinion about the propriety of the action if that Alsoran team had approached the second place team who was well known as a good strategizer and a good manager and said, "What do you think I can do to improve my team?" And that was his opening to offer specific player-based advice about trading and picking up and what have you i think if the if the second place team was talked in in, in general terms and said well you know we're we're whatever three quarters for the season whatever it might be you know there's a, a, a only a few ways left you know the trade deadline's approaching um the the waiver wire's thinning uh, are you aware that that you can actually trade for Fab, or you can turn in your injured players and and get more Fab, so you could you could pot- potentially get a uh, a higher ranked player at the trade deadline? You know, I, I think if you if they kept it in a general sense, I have no issue with with that. Uh, if especially if they're approached. Last question on this. Uh, suppose that the uh, genesis of the discussion between the also-ran and the second-place team had been trade discussions. And so uh, presuming Team 2, uh, the second-place team, contacts the also-ran and says, would you be interested in acquiring Player X? And the guy says, why would I want Player X? And the, fa- the t- second-place team says, well, if you acquired player X, you could uh, you could cash him in because he got traded to the National League, and you could get your the fab his salary back as fab. That would push you past Davit in uh, for the fab hammer, and that would mean. And we knew Bobby Abreu was going to be the guy. That would mean that Bobby Abreu could be on your roster, which would really help you. Is that different now that he's been approached in a trade context, and then explains to the guy why the trade is beneficial to him? Even though it's not mm. the same way we would normally do it, which would be, well, if if uh, if I trade you Malik Smith, you know, you could pick up five points in stolen bases, and leave out the fact that the five guys you're going to pass are going to be the guys that I'm trying to catch. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting because I, I didn't know where you're going to go with that. And the, the, the standard, you know, cliche conversation is, well, you know, I can gain points in homers, you can gain points in steals. It's a win-win trade. Right. But yeah, the aspect, the added aspect of you can trade in the player. Uh, yeah, that is a t- I mean, my, my initial answer is, again, it's, uh, maybe it's kind of towing the fence or whatever, is if you if they say something like, um, well, you, you know, you can cash that player in and get some fab and improve your, you know, you don't, you know, you, you get more fab so you can get a better playing across at the deadline. I don't have a, I can't afford to trade you a player such as Bobby Abreu who's coming over, but I can get you more fab. And it's kind of, it, it, it's it's sort of like you know you're just basically telling the guy read the rules 
specifically read the rules about turning players in. So I mean, just so just it's just cutting to the chase. So that I get it's it's somewhat it's somewhat. I think I would be ticked that I'm in a league with somebody who doesn't know the rules. Although, to be honest with you, I think, you know, I think I, maybe I've mentioned this to you, I don't remember, but I'll bet if we, you know, those things where the you, you, they go out man in the street and they ask, you know, political questions or who was the, you know, the, the first president or stuff like that, just to basically embarrass people. I'll bet if we were to do that with people in, in our leagues and say, you know, what are the, is this a rule in our league or whatever, I think we'd find a, hard, a huge, a huge uh, percentage of each leagues that we're in the guys, the guys and gals don't know the rules. Uh, I said that was going to be the last thing, but let me let me raise another sort of hypothetical. Sure, we have two possible situations here. So, in situation one, let's suppose that the uh, that the also ran team, the player was Elmer Dessens. He got traded to the Dodgers. I just remembered that. So he has Elmer Dessens on his team, and the second place team says contacts him and says, you know. You could uh, send Elmer Dessens to the waiver wire and and cash in your fab and get Bobby Abreu. That sounds like, it, from what you've said, that would be beyond the pale, that he's telling the guy precisely what to do. In scenario two, the second place team owns Elmer Dessens, offers him in trade, and explains you could then do that, to the fab drop. Does the, in, the fact that it's a part of it is a trade affect how you think about whether the uh, – the advice is consists of, of, of an impropriety. Uh, the, uh, yeah, it, does the trade mask the fact? I mean, because you can't you can't talk the trade. You know, the, the trade opens up the ability to get specific about players. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, right, because the guy's I, gonna, I, I, the guy's going to say Elmer Dessens. Why would I want Elmer Dessens? Which, which yeah, I think it's the same the question, thing. Is, right? is yeah, I think it's the same thing as yeah, exactly. It's a very clever ploy by the second place team. I mean, I, it just it's it's a it's a very clever way to pass along information that otherwise might be considered an underhanded means of gaining ground. I think it's it's just it's, it's a very clever ploy of uh, you know being able to. And I don't know if it's you know I'm trying to think an, an analogy I really can't think of one, but yeah to me I think I think again I would probably just be really really bummed that the other owner didn't even understand that you could do that with a player like Elmer Dessens and wasn't looking to see if they had anybody of that ilk on their team. And I think finally, uh, you know everybody's going to have an opinion about this, and uh, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said look. If the culture of the league is such that it, it accepts things that you find unacceptable, then you have to leave the league. Or you can go around to all your league mates and try to explain why you think the rules should be changed or the approach should be changed. And I've, I realize now in hindsight that when I canvassed my league and said, do you think this is okay? I mean, a lot of them might not have had an opinion on it either way, but wanted to seem like in 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 lockstep with what they thought everybody else thought and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think if you're in a league that has a set of rules or circumstances that allow something you don't find palatable, then I think you have to leave the league. Uh, before we go, Todd, it's uh, Tout Daily. The final tournament weekend is coming up. 
and uh, that's very exciting. You have three tickets, and I was wondering, how do you think the fact that you have more tickets than anybody else going into the uh, final tournament affects your strategic planning versus if you only had one? Yeah, it's interesting, and uh, you're you're uh, in large part responsible for the Tout Daily going to a Survivor tournament as opposed to a one-day finals. You know, the idea of Tout Daily is uh, we award tickets into the finals over a four-week period, the the best score of a four-week period, and then you and in one of our talks you pointed out that isn't it kind of weird? Then okay, so the the point is to be consistently strong over four weeks. And then the t- champion is determined in a one-day tournament. And you, you, you said this from somebody who's, who, who won a tournament. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you were crowned our Tout Daily champion one season uh, by winning a tournament. So I thought, you know, that was a very candid, a very candid question. And uh, thought about it, and I agreed. And what we ended up doing was uh, changing it into a three-day tournament where an old, the old survivor method where uh, half the teams move on to the second day and half of those teams move on to the finals with the quirk where in the, in, in, in straight DFS in a survivor tournament, the, the last day becomes winner take all. But what we're doing is we're using the accumulative total over those three weeks. So we're going to go 16 to eight to four. And we have uh, four, four of our, our participants will be uh, earning some jelly beans as it were. So it, anybody who made it to that last day, uh, knows they're going to get some jelly beans. It's just how many they're going to get. So it's just kind. Of, I think it's a really fun way of doing it. It incorporates more than just trying to win the tournament. This year, uh, again, I get three tickets out of the sixteen. Um, especially in the Survivor tournament, um, it, the fact that Survivor, I don't care how many tickets. The uh, what the Survivor does is you you play the first day like you would a cash game, because all you need to do is finish in the top half. And even even the second day. Uh, you really only need to play with a, like a cash game, when, but then there's only eight 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 runners anyway. You're gonna get differentiation just because there's so few teams in it. But if if, if I'm blessed enough to be in the finals, one of the final four, or or three of the final four, maybe who knows? Then uh, then that I will I will probably if I only have one, I, you know what? With only four players, I think I just you just put your best lineup in. I don't think you, you have to worry about stat, you know. I think if a stack is your best play, you do the stack. But I don't think you have to worry about finding the cheapest pitcher. I think when you're only playing against four people, um, you just want to. You don't want to. You don't want to uh, blow it just by going with a trying to you know take a huge risk on a on a on a, on a lesser pitcher and just kind of be out of it because he gives up four runs in the first inning of the seven o'clock game. So um, I will probably be playing it a bit safer. I wondered also, uh, anybody with multiple tickets, you have three. So uh, suppose, I imagine you'll be Todd Team 1, Todd Team 2, Todd Team 3. Let's suppose teams Todd Team 1 and Todd Team 2 both get through. Then, uh, and one of them has, you know, 100 points and the other one has 90 and they both got through because that was good enough in the top half of the field. Now you've got, you're going into the, the second day, the Saturday, and you have two teams, one that has 100, one that has 90. Does that affect your strategy as far as how you roster Team 1 and Team 2 for the next? Are you going to put your best team in to try to pile on Team uh, Team 1, or are you going to put your best guess forward on team t- on your second team because it's got fewer points? How do you manage that? Haven't had to worry about that yet. That's a great question, and we'll only have like two or three days to think about it because we're going to go Tuesday, Friday, Tuesday. Have not, uh, say, putting the cart before the horse. Um, 
I would guess, and then just by having putting in lineups, you know, I don't play a huge volume, but I'm going to say that I probably can find two lineups that I like equally that are different. And, you know, maybe it just turns, I haven't, you know, obviously don't know the pitching yet. It may be that, that, that I just, that the pitching is such that maybe I want to du- double down on the same pitchers and then go with different hitters. But I'm going to, I'm going to guess, and, and, and maybe this just more has to do with, I don't spend the, the amount of time that the grinders do finding the best lineup. So maybe if I spent more time, I would actually come up with, I like this lineup the absolute best. And I suppose in that case, I would tag that on to the best team. I mean, it, it comes down, you know, do you try to get, do you try to get greedy and win all three spots, or do you try the optimal amount to win one? And what I, the, what I came, the conclusion I came with last year and, and carry on is, don't get greedy. You'll end up with nothing. And finally, why Tuesday, Friday, Tuesday, and not Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Uh, because you want the you want the you, you want the the feel to be uh, the biggest feel possible. You don't want to you know the Friday and the Sunday. I'm sorry, the Saturday and Sunday. They are they're day slates and you, you line up locks at one o'clock. You don't have to want to worry about the four three th- three thirty or four o'clock games. Um, now we we sort of do in the nighttime anyway. Uh, Sunday, I mean, Sunday isn't as bad because this, it's just, it's sort of the equivalent of a normal night where um, you know all the games are within an eight hour stretch. Saturday, you know, you start one o'clock, then four o'clock, then seven o'clock, then ten o'clock. It just spreads it too thin. So we try to pick the nights where uh, the maximum amount of games are in the same slate. And within a reasonable time frame, we're always guessing, as you know, you know, we're making some guesses as to the late games. And I'm an East Coast guy, so when I say 7 o'clock, I should be cognizant of the fact that we're talking to several different time zones, if not different countries here. Uh, so, you know, 7 Eastern, you know, the 10 Eastern games, um, we're always guessing the pitchers we, we know, but some of the lineups we might not know. Um, so it's just a way to keep it that way. One of the And, and the reason that we're not going, you know, Tuesday's a regular night, Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday is we don't want to extend into September where you're dealing with lineup with roster expansion and everything else. We want to keep the finals as close to the regular season as possible. And, of course, uh, anybody who's interested in following how this tournament goes can go to TeltWars.com. It's uh, always full of TeltWars daily information, how teams are doing, what the tournament status will be, and uh, what the players are looking at each night as they put their rosters in. Uh, Todd Zola, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Yeah, and I'll just uh, I'll plug our, our friend Ray Murphy. is uh, has one of the 16 golden tickets. So if you want to see how the uh, how the co-GM does, Ray Ray's, uh Ray took down one of the tickets and will be in the tournament with me. All right, Todd, thanks. Excellent. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about riding the 2018 closer go round. Ah, closers. Can't live with them, can't kill them all. I've had from one to five closers on my team at various times this year, and yet I'm barely middle of the pack in saves. And after looking at how closers get acquired, lost, and stumbled upon, I'm coming to think there's no right way to manage this particular fantasy baseball conundrum. 
First, let me quickly detail my team's magical mystery tour through the kingdom of closers. At the auction of my American League-only league, I had thought to aim for two closers, one established or top-tier guy and one more speculative pick, probably a bullpen second banana behind a shaky incumbent, but ideally a guy who had the closer role coming out of spring but was widely thought to be skating on thin ice. After refusing to go into the $20 for Kimbrell, Chapman, Osuna, or Edwin Diaz, I thought I did well in achieving my first aim by spending $18 on Houston closer Ken Giles, and I was congratulating myself on that when Osuna picked up a suspension at the start of the season. Then I achieved my second aim. I got Minnesota closer Fernando Rodney, who had the job but was widely thought to be a bad outing or two from losing the job. I actually also got the seasoned backup in Addison Reed, which I thought was a decent play because, of course, he was with Minnesota, and there's an obvious handcuff for the suspect Rodney. Ron Chandler has written often about the frustration in trying to project and value closers because of the difficulty in projecting saves. Remembering one of Ron's techniques for making this point, I went and looked at the Tout 15 Team Mixed Auction League to see how the saves so far have matched up with the expectations of some of the best fantasy minds in the business. So far in 2018 through Tuesday's games, 136 different pitchers had at least one save. The Touts got 98% of those pitchers, that's about 68% of them, in the auction and reserve rounds. Similarly, of the 923 total saves recorded so far, the Touts got 643. That's about 70%, and that's pretty good. But the Touts also missed six pitchers who have 10 or more saves. Brandon Morrow and Bud Norris have 22 each. Sergio Romo has 15. Hunter Strickland, Sir Anthony Dominguez, and A.J. Mentor round out the 10-plus crowd. The Touts also missed out on 14 more pitchers who had 4 to 10 saves. And they spent 42 auction dollars on pitchers who have 3 saves or fewer, including 5 who don't have any saves at all. Now none of this is to suggest that the Tout mixed owners are not able to figure things out. They're excellent owners. The point is that if even players of this high caliber are missing 30% of the available saves during the auction or draft, it's hard to see putting together a workable strategy. Go for the proven closers? Hey, you might get your money's worth if you drafted Kimbrell or Aroldis Chapman or Edwin Diaz especially with his 46. But you might also have gotten Roberto Osuna, who had 9, Corey Knable with 14, or the aforementioned Ken Giles, my guy, with 13. How about playing for the more speculative cheaper options in the second and third tiers, or those next-in-line guys? Well, you might have got Blake Trinan with his 31, or like I did, Rodney with his 25, or maybe Shane Green in Detroit. Nobody liked him, and here he is sitting on 25. But you also might have got Hector Neris, who has 10, Steve Sishek, who has 3, Archie Bradley also has 3. How about Andrew Miller? Somebody paid good coin for Andrew Miller, and they got one save for their trouble. Mark Melanson's only got one save as well. So does Cam Bedrosian, one of the many guys thought to have closer possibilities with Anaheim. Or maybe you just decide you're going to partially punt the category and hope you can cash in by buying up the 30% of saves that didn't go at the auction. The trouble is that in Fab Leagues anyway, you get into a whole nother round of guesswork. Who's going to get the saves? When will it happen? Most importantly, how much will the other guys bid for them? It's hard. It certainly has been hard for me. 
on to my season. Rodney, of course, settled in as the closer in Minnesota despite some ERA issues. Giles, however, built on his disastrous playoff performance by quickly making himself as popular in Houston as Jose Ureña is now in Atlanta. Giles got sent all the way to AAA, probably because Elba was already booked. And that's too bad, because otherwise we could have said Giles had Elba trouble. Yeah. As my own disastrous season wore on, I thought one path to points was to be ahead of the game on closers. I fabbed Justin Anderson and Jim Johnson, pretty much every candidate for the job in Anaheim except for the guy who eventually got it, Blake Parker. I also grabbed Danny Barnes in Toronto to take advantage of what I saw as turmoil in the Osuna Les Pen over there. As we headed into July, I tried to preemptively pick up pitchers who might benefit from the trade activity, and as the deadline came and went, I actually got myself all the way up to those five closers I mentioned earlier. But not for long. Rodney just kept on going, and at the deadline was firmly in the closer role in Minnesota. That was closer number one. I had hung on to Giles while he was in AAA, and he got traded to Toronto for Asuna, of course, and was quickly anointed the Jays' closer. He was shaky at first, but seems to have settled into the role. That's my second closer. I thought Joaquin Soria was going to be dealt, and I grabbed Jace Fry as the shiniest nugget on top of the festering pile that is the White Sox pen. Soria indeed got dealt, and Fry got the job. Closer number three. I also picked up Jake Diekman early in July in the expectation that he would inherit the role in Texas when Kaoni Kayla got dealt. Kaoni Kayla did get dealt, and Diekman got the closer role. Number four for me. And after I had acquired Michael Givens in a trade, I kept him despite some really bad outings because I thought Baltimore might deal both closer Zach Britton and key setup guy Brad Brock. They did do that, and Givens got the closer job. Closer number five. I could see maybe picking up 30, maybe 40 additional saves coming my way down the stretch, which would have been enough to vault me up five or six points in the saves category into the top two or three, maybe even top spot. And then, almost as quickly, it all unraveled. Having traded Kayla, Texas surprised me by also dealing Diekman 15 minutes later, down to four. Jace Fry was awful. He started his tenure by giving up three earned runs to three hitters and gave up earned runs in two of his next seven outings. He was quickly assigned to loogie status, and I was down to three closers. After I breathed my sigh of relief at the deadline with Rodney surviving in Minnesota, I really got blindsided when the Twins traded him anyway in the post-waiver period. Down to two closers. And that's where I stand. Two closers. One of them, Michael Givens, a shaky guy with a near 5 ERA and a 140 whip, who has only three saves and a 426-110 line in his six games as Baltimore's closer. And of course I have Giles, who has been the main man at the end of the pen in Toronto. In his seven games as closer, he has a sparkling 1080 ERA and a 150 whip, but that's mostly the result of one horrible outing in which he gave up five runs in two-thirds of an inning. Without that one, a 450 ERA, but an 083 whip, which makes me think, or more accurately pray, that better times are coming. The bigger issue, of course, is that neither Toronto, nor especially Baltimore, is likely to generate a lot of save opportunities, even though I have the closers there. So, the bottom line, I think, I might pick up a point or two in the category, but not the four or five I had hoped for. Oh, closers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up.
Of course, you can read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website, and we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest for this Friday full edition, Justin Mason, who writes for Fangraphs and Rotographs and Friends with Fantasy Benefits and Fantasy Alarm. He runs the great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. He appears on a couple of podcasts really regularly. He's a really active guy in the fantasy business, as I'm sure you can tell, and I think you'll agree, a great guest for the podcast here. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the Baseball HQ subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that, in turn, helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.